Welcome to NoClip, I'm Chad Drummond. I'm JJ Artemis. And I'm Andy Koenig. And today we're going to be talking about Bloodborne. Bloodborne was released in 2015, in March, thank you very much, by From Software, and was published by uh, Sony Computer Entertainment. Now, that of course is notable, um, as we have talked about Dark Souls once or twice before. <laughs> a few times. Uh, <laughs> That's not evidence at all by the thank you that you put into the description of the date. I assume yeah. that that was you thanking the gods, or From Software specifically. Oh yeah, no, it was a thank that you, was to you to you for oh, calling me out on not yeah. knowing the day. Oh, uh, I thought it was just a general divine, like, oh, thanks be! <laughs> thanks be, Mar yeah, March, I celebrate the release of Bloodborne every March <laughs> since 2015. I've done it exactly once. <laughs> uh, anyway, so we've talked about Blood, or, no, we haven't, we've talked about Dark Souls before, and uh, if you listen to our original Dark Souls podcast. Both of them. Both of those, yeah, those two episodes. Um, you may have noticed that I fucking hate that game. <laughs> uh, and I did actually have replayed Dark Souls since, um, and I liked it a lot better the second time, but I still... I don't, it's not this game for me, mm -hmm. right? Like, it doesn't come to that point. And I really enjoy this game. And I think the Dark Souls podcast, this is more of like an apology than anything else. A lot of people listening to it probably would have just told me that I was a scrub <laughs> and uh, that I needed to become better. But that's uh, different. Usually in like a two-syllable way. Like, yeah. Get good. There's nothing, that's not, it's devoid of contest from the podcast. Like, no matter what we said, we would still get that. And you specifically would still get that. That's true. Yeah, no matter what we say, I would still be a scrub. You are a scrub. <laughs> but fortunately, that game uh, made it possible for me to play this game, which I absolutely love. Um, not exactly sure what I want to start with. I guess the thing that I left off of the intro, that I have kind of been leaving off of the intro like intermittently, is that the game is, is the genre of the game. And this is like, in the style of Dark Souls, like an action RPG, etc. Visually really, really similar. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about that. Not, not visually, like, aesthetically? Not aesthetically, like, in terms of... I don't know a good description for this. But, like, if you took a screenshot of this game it, and you like, compared the UI elements and right. your, like, you camera mean, position... You mean, like, graphically. Like, the models and things look similar. Like, it has the same, like... You can tell it's made by the same studio. Mm -hmm. So, I, yeah. I can same, tell it's a game. Same camera doctor. system, same UI, same, like style of animations, same weightiness to the characters, yep. etc. Pretty notably, uh, you do feel a lot lighter, I think, as a, as a True. character but in like, this game. There's a big difference. Like Playing Bloodborne feels familiar if you're a Dark Souls player, whereas like playing like Dark Souls 2 <laughs> feels, feels like a lot m more different. That's what I mean. Yeah. It, the it similarities... looks like a Dark Souls sequel. Right. The similarities, like, both visually and, uh, uh, like, in the gameplay and the mechanical game feel of it. Right. Um, it's different. It's actually, it's, it is really, it is much more similar between, say, Dark Souls 3 and Bloodborne than Dark Souls and Dark Souls 2. Right. Like, it is, it is very close, and you can kind of see how Dark Souls 3 is sort of the next step in this, it, like, how they pulled a lot of elements from... Bloodborne into the most recent Dark Souls sequel. And uh, 
So the first note, literally the first note that I have that I think is just this conversation incarnate, is that I've written Dark Souls, but faster. <laughs> Which is, I think, I mean, it's reductionist, obviously, um, but uh, I think a fair description if you were just, if you wanted to give somebody the one-line description of this game. But as you, as you brought up, a lot of the Dark Souls, like, tropes and trappings are back in this game. Lots of items that are exactly the same items, just under a different name. Yeah. Uh, and importantly, we don't just mean fast air as in someone hit fast forward. We mean it incentivizes you to be faster. It enables that a little bit, but your animations, independently, still aren't, like, speed demon level compared to Dark Souls games. It's not like they turned it into like a, some kind of like Devil May Cry rapid fest. It's just that you need to play the game fast, and the game makes you very aware of that. Almost yeah, it's, it's designed for you to play it faster and more aggressively. Yeah. And that aggression is, yeah, I, I think actually Devil May Cry is a fairly good comparison both like visually and mechanically in that it is basically a step down from Devil May Cry in every like level of intensity because you are attacking slower than Devil May Cry things need to be more sort of uh, planned out and thought about yeah uh, as opposed to Devil May Cry which is all just like doing things constantly <laughs> uh, and then also like where Devil May Cry looks like Victorian horror but Sort of just, but very video gamey. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Victorian horror, as presented, like fairly traditionally, and then it just escalates from there. So looking at like the beginning of both of those games are kind of similar. This game also bears some non-trivial visual similarities to Resident Evil Four. I think they look quite similar in a. Uh, Especially in their, like, character design. Yeah, it depends on where you are, and, and like, fi- physically within both games. Mm-hmm. Like, nothing in RE4 can even hope to approach the sort of majesty of the initial Yharnam. Like, right. looking over that goddamn right. horizon. And, and nothing in Resident Evil 4 ever escalates to the point of, of the Great Ones, either. Right. But, like, the 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 giants in Resident Evil 4, the El Gigantes, and the uh, the... God, brick trolls is what I've been <laughs> calling them literally since the game came out. Uh, in this game, share almost identical designs, right? Right. And they kind of strive for that same thing with the crazed villagers and then like the mutated, horrible monsters. They're pulling from the same yeah. well. It's yeah. a good well to pull from. Yeah, I would agree that there is some similarity in like the enemy designs, but like, I really don't wouldn't. I guess I don't really agree beyond that though. That they have a similar aesthetic. I don't think it's a uh, the the full aesthetic. It's just certain visual elements. It, it's it's more of a pithy comment than anything else. Right. In the fact that uh, the two ga- it it emphasizes to me that Bloodborne was looking to more explicitly channel the feeling of horror, whereas Souls games are still horrifying a lot of the time, <laughs> but not in in an explicit way. Souls right. games are imposing. Mm-hmm. Uh, with maybe one exception that I could think of off the top of my head, they're very rarely, like, straight-up terrifying. I guess two if we're talking the first one. Like, they rarely try and just make you shit yourself. Most of the time, they just make you 
want to, outside of the context of the game, just sort of sit there slack-jawed and go, like, what the fuck am I supposed to yeah. do about this? In, in Dark Souls, the scary moments are, like, organic to the world, where, like, if you're, like, in the Tomb of the Giants and you hear, like, a black knight running at you, you're gonna be like, oh, fuck! You yeah. know? <laughs> you just hear that, especially, like, if you were wearing armor at the time and you stop moving, but the chinking continues. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're like, like oh, oh, shit. Yeah. But, yeah, that is, that is, uh... What do you call that? Like Bloodborne, in contrast, isn't just imposing. It hates you. It <laughs> is terrifying. Everything, whereas Dark Souls is a world that just sort of mechanically churns and kills everything that inhabits it. Right. The world of Bloodborne is a world where everything wants to kill each other. Right. It, everything in Bloodborne is, is, is a hostile entity. They're, they're, they're very few. And it's shown, honestly, in the fact that, like, there are so few NPCs in Bloodborne as compared to Dark Souls. Lots of people in Dark Souls are shown as people who, are, who have lost hope but are looking for some sort of asylum. Mm -hmm. uh, and it looks, in Bloodborne, it looks as though everyone has broken out of an asylum. <laughs> uh, it's like, in, in Dark Souls, there's a more, like, um, like, a tragic tone to the NPCs where it's like, they know they're going to like lose their minds and go hollow. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Bloodborne, they're they've already like lost their minds. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't have gone. Okay, so it's a further along in the progression. I agree with that, especially mechanically, because Bloodborne sets out to do things that are horror by definition, and therefore things that are built into the game aesthetically attempt to emphasize that the music is notably. It has like the shrill violin tones and like the like when you do a parry, like a successful parry is accented by the classic horror movie like high violin note, like just that <laughs> sound immediately. I don't know. It, it's being a little bit uh, incomplete to say that Dark Souls doesn't have things that are supposed to be visually frightening. Because, you know, like, we were just talking about the gaping dragon. Like, oh, yeah. That's that is a things. thing that is, like, well, that's just horrifying. Like, gaping dragon goes for the similar horror, uh, and Tomb of the Giants goes for horror mechanically. Yeah. Right. I think that, like, Dark Souls always tries to, like, infuse some other kind of, like, feelings into that, though. I don't think they ever straight up just go for this is supposed to be scary. Yeah. As far as I can remember, there's no fucking blood shitter that just comes at you and like screams horribly the and like rips the blood <laughs> the blood shitting beats everything oh, I think that's what he's talking everything in, in Bloodborne has blood coming out of it everywhere that it can this, sh this game has like just an abundance of blood like as they, the name would imply yeah they really lean pretty heavily on that theme but they go to the point where it's like if you're using a serrated weapon, it even, like, adds additional, like, streams of blood to each of your attacks, <laughs> yeah. arcing them in angles perpendicular to the way that you're attacking the enemy. Yeah. And it's weird. I'm actually hemophobic. Like, I am afraid of blood. And uh, for some reason, I, yeah, this game doesn't bother me, luckily. <laughs> that is good. Yeah. I imagine I, I kinda, digital like, blood probably right, doesn't yeah, affect you. Not as big of a deal. But, like, I actually kind of just, like, start not noticing it, like, once I've been playing it for a while. It's just, like, whatever. <laughs> There's blood, like, the, everywhere. This, uh, not this past holiday season, but the, but the year before, 
uh, I was playing this game uh, in the presence of my parents, and I remember at one point my mom just looking up at the screen and being like, this is really gross. <laughs> and, I, and, like, it didn't occur to me at the time, but then, like, I kind of honed in on it, and I was, like, fighting something, and just, like, blood was just flying all over the screen. Yep. And I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, this is, this is pretty, uh... <laughs> pretty gross. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that people, like, talk about, where they're like, oh, you you're desensitized to things because you play games and like bullshit and then like cutting people up and just like yep, moving on yeah. and then like right you there. stop every now and then and like you look at your character model and just drenched in blood <laughs> like, good, oh. on, good on them though like they managed to do the whole I'm fucking drenched in blood everything that I attack rips blood out of it really aggressively mm-hmm. without it being like straight up grindhouse Right. It's always gross, but it's never like Mad World or something. Yeah, it's yeah, it's because it doesn't glorify it, like, like where Mad World kind of like revels in and kind of glorifies the violence. Bloodborne doesn't. Yeah, it's not violence for slapstick in the way that a lot of games tend yeah. to. Like, blood's so heavily tied into the themes, and that it just it feels appropriate mm-hmm. in the game, even if it is a little ridiculous. Oh yeah. Described, everything in this game is completely ridiculous, but it somehow manages to consistently avoid yeah. becoming a parody of itself. And, and that's something that just from software is really good at, or specifically under Miyazaki's direction, anyway. Yeah. The uh, the things that I uh, noted just on this topic uh, before we attempt to move on is that uh, we brought up the creature design, and I think that that is like a really important element of of how this game puts its aesthetic across, especially in the ineffable comparisons to Dark Souls. Um, because the Dark Souls, uh, you have a lot of like high fantasy monsters, things that have been discussed and exist in other forms of art. Right. If you uh, opened a D&D monster manual, you would find some stuff. Yeah, you would find a lot Dark of Souls. things that heavily influence the creature design in Dark Souls. But with the exception of, of some of the like early game enemies... The majority of the enemies in Bloodborne are not just, like, people who have lost their mind, the way that Dark Souls sort of portrays a lot of its base-level enemies. Um, it is... They're things that are just actually monsters. It's like, things that are horrible that were designed from the ground up to look unearthly. The things that come to mind as, like, prime examples of the, things like the Gardens of Eyes, which are the, like, fly monsters from Bergenworth, and, like, the brain suckers. Basically, once you start, once you cross the threshold of the forest and things start, the the eldritch horror uh, that the game so heavily draws yeah. from there's starts a nice, to come to frame. Yeah, there's a nice parallel, like, with the enemy designs to, like, the n- implied narrative, where, like, things start kind of like something out of like Van Helsing, like werewolves and zombie men. And then they like escalate into like the Lovecraftian Right, when you're fighting old gods. Yeah. I think the transition is really nice. This is odd for me to say considering how small it is in terms of like game time and I guess literal square footage but that when that transition starts, the actual level of Bergenworth might be one of my favorite levels just in games. Bergenworth is... Because it, it is not an area that is particularly mechanically interesting. It allows you to kind of take a step back, especially in the forest, which is 
like almost a gauntlet. Yeah. As yeah. compared to a lot of the rest of the game, uh, it gives you breathing room. You're you can pretty clearly see the first few enemies that you're coming up against, and it's when you kind of like the the soul's head, whatever illness you come down with when you're really entrenched in a souls game. Uh, starts to wear off and you can actually think about where you are and how you got there. Bergenworth is a great part of the game for that reason. Yeah, it's it adds that element, like that pacing, where you have like a, a minute to like soak in where you just where you are and what you've been doing and what everything means here. I, I think what really helps with that in Bergenworth's case is that it's kind of only barely designed like a video game level. Like especially in Dark Souls games generally you're kind of dungeon crawling your way around spaces. You're always exploring like huge areas with winding paths and interconnected rooms and ways that you sort of circle around and around yourself up or down trying to find and explore your way out. But when, once you get to Bergenworth, it's mostly just a house and it has it doesn't feel huge. You can walk all the way around the house. You know that it has no basement at least that explicitly you find. It's like a closed door, I yeah. think. But you know, like, this is all it is. It's, and it makes you remember that this isn't like... like it for, you know all the information about the environment very quickly, so you can start analyzing it faster and not thinking about it like a series of corridors. Right, yeah. yeah. It's just like a small mansion. Like, not... Yeah. Like, I really love the area, like, atmospherically, and, like, probably for all the same reasons that you guys do... But I do find that how small it is and how little time you spend there to be a little disappointing. Because I'm, like, so super into it while I'm there. And, like, I wish that it was longer. Yeah. It's one of those areas where my first time playing through the game, it was, it felt like a big deal. Yeah. And, like, fighting the NPC in the, in the university proper is a, you know, fairly difficult fight, especially your first time because you don't know all the things that she's capable of. And on subsequent playthroughs, the Bergenworth has just become, like, such a marginalized portion of the game. Because knowledge shrinks space in Dark Souls games more so than in most other games. Yeah. And with, like, the way the Bergenworth is set up, it's like, if, you, if your objective was to get from the end of the forest to Rom as quickly as possible, you could do it in about a minute and a half. Because <laughs> like, all you have to do is run or like do a lap around the building to the attic and then out the door, and you're there. It's, it's quite short. It, uh, there's lots of things in Bergenworth that incentivize you to stop to gain information. Like, I can't tell you how long that I sat standing there after escaping the forest seeing that whatever it was, the feather being that existed in yeah. the back alley there. I should, uh... The feather being? I should know. This is the thing we were trying to describe oh, earlier. Oh, the giant <laughs> centipede, centipede monster? Okay. Yeah. It's, 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 it's uh, neck is feathery, it looks like. Uh, I never noticed feathers on it. It's definitely an area that, that especially in your first playthrough, is kind of thought-provoking. And because of the slow drip leading into it, where you start noticing that things are, unless you're Andy and just think that things are weird all the way through the game, uh, you start to notice that things are a little bit further away from the kind of horror that you were expecting. You can tell you stumbled upon something different, like, almost immediately, which is part of why it's so intriguing. 
That's yeah. why, like, that's why, like, I know you don't like the forest level. Yeah. The forest level is my second least favorite area but, like, of the game. That's, it's, it stands out in my mind not as my favorite, but as one of my more favorite areas because I think it's just a thing in From Software's games for me. Like, I really like the area that, like, first switches things up. Mm-hmm. And, like, the forest is where it starts to, like, switch tone from, like, the Victorian streets into, like, here we go to all the weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Here it comes. Yeah, it does start because it starts out, and th- th- that's kind of the that's the slow drift that I'm referring to is because in the first your first four to five bosses in the game um, are all pretty standard. You have like a couple of beasts, a hunter, and things that are described as witches, more like eyeball hags. Mo- hags. Yeah. <laughs> hunchback uh, eyeball hags. Oh, uh, yes, the hunchback of, eyeball hag. Of Hemlick. Of Hemlick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're all things that it would, that are either fucking werewolves or things that, you know, Van Helsing would already kill. There right, is stuff yeah. that, like... Stuff that's not too, like, unexpected. Yeah. But then, uh, you enter into the forest and all of a sudden things start becoming a little bit more abstract like you could kind of see how people could become the things you've been fighting up to this point a person is not a huge wad of snakes right uh, <laughs> so you get to that and then and then the slow drip becomes a pretty full-blown gusher once yep. you <laughs> it, it does escalate pretty quickly once you hit the forest yeah and then you get to Bergenworth and it's just nothing from that point on is gonna make sense until uh, you look the, it up the, online <laughs> <laughs> until about the unseen village and at that point the Bergenworth point the breaking point the Bergenworth breaking point <laughs> they, <laughs> the have Bergen they have t-shirts that the, say yeah, that the, yeah the Bergenworth I heart the Bergen Road Breaking it's, Yeah, it says that, and it's a class of 09. <laughs> <laughs> Believe we're uh, now experiencing the Bergenworth breaking point. Yeah, <laughs> that is the point where I realized that I cared a lot about what was going on in Bloodborne, which is, I just expected to treat it like Dark Souls, where I didn't care at all through the whole game, and then at the end I would be like, "All right, what did I play?" and think about it for a minute and. Usually come away pretty unsatisfied. Bloodborne, to me, this is part of the reason why I connect with Bloodborne way more than I do with Dark Souls, and way more, as it turns out, than I do with most other games generally, is because of this, like, unknown factor. And I, th- I, I like that you hone in on, on Bergenworth, because that is a great, like, point of the game, where everything's to sort of... It comes together in as much as it is coming apart. Yeah. Like, it, it, it starts to make sense that you realize you know nothing. Yeah, yeah. Because the game... It, it, I, in some ways, they were also playing off prior like expectations for Souls games with this, where they made the game so tropey, and then literally at one point just ask you not to think about it and accept the tropes, that you just assume that everything... You fill in the gaps for yourself, and then you only realize their gaps when it's too late, and you're killing a spider creature under yeah. a lake. <laughs> Which I think I feel like spider is such a uh, an inaccurate term for rum because he kind of looks like a bloated caterpillar. Yeah, 
And he does. Does he have legs at yeah, all? He's like little legs. tiny legs. He's got, he's got little little critters, little baby legs. They're yeah. a she. I think it's a she. It is a she. You're right. Yeah. Why? Why is it? Because it's she? like the mother of all the spiders. Oh. Uh, also, I think Rom may have actually been a person at one point. Possible. I yeah. I this is part of the lore that I'm not like super well versed yeah. in. But yeah, Rum th- it was an attempt at making a great one, and uh, didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> See, while we're on the topic of the lore, uh, I-, I guess I feel like very different to Chad about the lore in Bloodborne. Not that I don't find it interesting, because you know, I'm a pretty big like fantasy like nerd and don't like discriminate. Because like Chad doesn't really like high fantasy. But he does really love uh, Lovecraft and stuff like that, so he latched onto this. But like, I I pretty much like any kind of weird fantasy stuff. So I went into Bloodborne really like wanting to get into that part and expecting to because that's what I engaged so much with Dark Souls and found that like I did not understand what was going on in Bloodborne at all. Whereas, like, in Dark Souls, I always felt like I had some kind of vague idea of what was happening, even if I was probably wrong. <laughs> like, I felt like I, like, had, like, I could guess what was going on. Whereas in Bloodborne, I'm like, I have no fucking clue what is happening. <laughs> and my point isn't even that I don't like the narrative. Like, right. now that I've, like, looked into it and understand it, I think it's cool. And I like Lovecraftian themes like that, and I think it was cool how they were able to convey a lot of it in the game. I think the game does, like, a piss-poor job of conveying any of it to you. Like, I'm amazed that a person could pick up on the story at all (laughs) on a playthrough. I I feel like it is not a thing that you can pick up on a playthrough. I think that you have to commit. Yeah, and I, I don't like... I think that's taking it too far. I can, for reference, since it's been a great deal of time since you two had to pick your brains for your initial grasping and understanding what was going on. But for me, it was comparatively recently. By the end of the game, I remember being of the general opinion... I didn't know pretty much any of the roles of the named principal actors. Like, I didn't know anything Ludric did. I didn't know any of the particulars about the relation between the choir and the church or any, any anything with nouns like that. I just thought, like, okay, church, clearly bad. Evil church... Mm. Trying to summon creatures, I wanna I wanna oppose church, uh, which made me unfortunately really throw my lot in with the vile blood. Just the second I got the opportunity to do that, uh-huh. unfortunately that doesn't have a lot of narrative depth, yeah. which made me side of the time. But I played through the game under the understanding of like, okay, once I got past, once I got like two Bergenworth, I was like, okay, everything I'm doing from here on out is now trying to oppose the church. But I completely missed all of the, I think actually kind of good hints that the hunter's dream is sort of fucked up and that you are also part of this puzzle. Even by the end of it, I still thought that I was like a separate actor working universally. I didn't distrust German at all until the, the moment. Okay. I, did, I, so, I distrusted German from the minute I saw him. Well, that's just to be expected when you play a game. Yes. <laughs> so, I think... I agree that they do a pretty bad job at at implying what has gone on, yeah, and I think and it's a, a shame. good job of uh, just implying uh, of just telling you what is going on, and <laughs> I I think I was giving the game more credit than maybe it deserved, 
because your description of what was happening is just like one to save us from being sent hate mail and two <laughs> to I think illustrate this point pretty well the uh, executioners and the vile bloods have no relation to the like church and Bergenworth and in, well they have some relation is that some of their members were members of both but the yeah. vile bloods are separated entirely on a different in a different area. Uh, the Healing Church and the Menza Scholars of Bergenworth are the two opposing factions that drive the plot. And in fact, the Church does not want to summon uh, Great Ones. It is it was originally Bergenworth, and now the 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 Healing Church is mostly attempting to quell the issues that came from like mining out the the Great Ones. Uh, well, blood. And, and yet you go up to the choir and there are fucking alien people there too and you <laughs> smash a window and you get into the back and you go down an elevator in the head church of the whole place mm-hmm. and stored below is a great one yeah. in an altar of horribleness. Altar of despair. Despair. Is the actual oh, title okay. of the book. It wasn't horribleness, <laughs> it was despair. Yeah. Oh, and that is, that is like yeah. a kind of a key plot point that as you have noticed is super hidden is hidden behind a window that you would have no reason to break yeah at all do you find that yes on your own acts complete luck 100% luck you found it I think you have like some kind of like from software game superpower (laughs) like JJ like on his first playthrough of Dark Souls like found all the secrets Except for killing Guinevere. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't kill. That's Guinevere. like the only thing he didn't figure out for himself. I missed which something is like in Bloodborne, but I forget what I told you. <laughs> there were definitely things. Well, I mean, because there's there are areas of the DLC that you didn't. Oh like, yeah, yeah. Because never, of because the the issue. Because my weird. That's my weird. Yeah. We'll get to that later. But yeah. either way, whatever it is, I think I do think. I do think that I missed something in this game, though I can't remember what it is right yeah. now. He definitely missed lots of items, uh, and he missed a lot of the DLC. So that is, like, he didn't kill Braidor. Braidor. Braidor the mind lover. <laughs> the uh, the guy with the funny headdress who who gives you the blood letter. Yes. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, past the there are things that you didn't do basically. Yeah. Um, but that leads us into how much of this game is actually optional. Um, which is insanity. Because I remember talking to you about this after I had completed the game for the first time. So you actually played, Andy, you played this game before I did. Um, oh, I guess that's right. Yeah, because I, well, I played it before you guys did, but I quit pretty early because I spent three hours in the first area and couldn't get through it. Oh, I remember original Chad going through <laughs> yeah. Central Yarnum. So we will... Uh, Noob Chad. Yeah. But when I did play it, I remember talking to you and you saying that you thought the game was pretty short, especially in comparison to a Dark Souls game. Mm-hmm. Um, your this first playthrough is yeah. something like 30 hours. This is one of the like my main takeaways from the game the first time I played it. Was like, I got... I, pl- I was playing through it, and I, I think up to like the final boss, my playthrough was like 33 hours, which right. is like half as long as I would have expected it to take to beat the game. Based on uh, their From Software's catalog that I'd played, but I feel like before. at that point hadn't you only played Dark Souls? Yeah, but like, I I just like expected it to be like 
Oh, it's like a next-gen game that's like Dark Souls. It'll probably be about the same length. <laughs> I guess they kind of spent a lot of the uh, the extra processing power on just putting more trash on the floor. Right. Yeah. This is like it just feels really. It feels like it ends abruptly. To yeah. Me. The it, yeah, it ended abruptly in about half as long as I thought it would take to finish. It ends abruptly in terms of like a game feel sense, not just because of that sort of time awareness, because even like you could have a thirty hour game that easily felt like you were going through a full narrative arc. Right. It's partially it's, because of the story stuff that we were talking about before, right. where you have no idea what's going on. So when you get to Murgo's Loft and kill the wet nurse and by implication Murgo or whatever as well. Yes. You don't know they're like, oh, I've accomplished my mission because you have no idea what your mission is. Yep. Right. Because the the thing is, when you get to that stage, in retrospect, when you uh, like, w- once you've read up on the story of the game, and you get to the staircase that leads to the Wetner's boss fight, uh, there's a what now seems like kind of a heavy-handed reference, but almost no one playing the game for the first time would recognize. the. They put Queen Yarnum with, like, a blood stain on her, like, down, like, the front of her dress, yeah, yeah. Right. standing there screaming as you're about to go in to fight the boss, which, when you walk up there, you're like, what is this fresh hell? Like, what have I walked <laughs> yeah. into? Well, yeah, I even, like, made the connection that, like, I'd been hearing a baby cry. Right. And yeah. I was like, okay, like, she miscarried, or she just, like, had a horrible birthing experience. Yeah, and she yeah. was in the- And then there was the wet nurse, so I'm like, okay, this all loosely connects, but I don't, still don't know, I don't know who that is. Yeah. <laughs> is that Murgo? The only... I don't know. I picked up the connection. <laughs> she's, she was in that cutscene. So yeah. you know, oh, you know she's after you there. see you beat Ron. Ron. You yeah, see you her, see her yeah. there, and then after you come out, I forget where you actually read this note or whether it's just text on screen after you beat Rom. But you know that your mission at some point becomes like find and kill the baby. Right. And yeah. You hear the cry constantly. The nightmare baby. Right. right. But you never actually kill the baby, which and I think is weird. And I don't you know don't why they even make know that choice. Like what the baby is or why it's important. Well, it doesn't. I don't believe it specifically says to kill the baby. It says like. Something a little bit that implies that you're supposed to kill Yeah, sure, yeah, sure. So you right, kill the right. wet nurse, and like the carriage is there, and there's nothing in it. Well, the carriage is already there. Yeah. When you walk in, there isn't anything, but you can hear the crying. It's because you can't... Because this is... Now I'm getting further in than I think I wanted to. Sure. I, I just meant it's weird that they spent all this time building up and implying that like you're out looking for this baby, and they never show you the baby. Putting all this in game form, as with so many of the other problems of putting the Cthulhu mythos in any form other than than like a literary structure. Mm-hmm. Like it's so much better as text. Even within Bloodborne I find the narrative so much better than text. So many times I would find, you know, like random notes. I think, I hope I'm not misconstruing where I find this at, but there is a note that you get to right before entering in the cathedral ward, right before Oedon Chapel or whatever, Yeah. Uh, where someone describes like itching inside of his head or something and the creepiness of... Oh, yeah, there was one note about someone convulsing uncontrollably in response to things. Yep. Lots of text that's really evocative and creepy in that way, even more so than seeing a man with a bug head who saps your brains and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But it, Wait, is there, like, this is where I think there's... Because I, I feel like they try to assert these themes mechanically within the game, but almost all of it hinges on two of, I think, 
the weakest systems in Bloodborne from a mechanical standpoint, and that is Insight and Frenzy. And both of these things are just... One of them is a currency, and you're taught to interact with it like a currency, right? and you don't think about it as anything else from, like... The game gives you no reason to think about it as anything else until it starts affecting the game. Yeah, the signaling for insight... Is is that supposed to play into, like, the lack of knowledge you have about it, though? Right, well, because the more... The closer your character doesn't really know what it is, because... Oh, I don't. I don't think that that is the uh, case. Insight, because you get it when you enter new areas and when you see things that are unexplainable, you gain insight and more knowledge about the uh, the the great ones and the and as is in the Cthulhu myth- mythos, the more you know about these things, the less likely you are to be able to comprehend it, mm-hmm. and so you go crazy. And so you see this in a lot of people in the game who have gone crazy or have just flatly removed their eyes or covered them so that they can no longer see things. Um, I do think it's... Uh, you're right. It was a bit of a, a clumsy execution of that really good idea. Right. Like uh, The problem, I think, with that they probably ran up against with doing any system like that, especially when it's sort of a slow currency, like you acquire it slowly and spend it slowly, right. is that its effects are so distant often from when you acquire it, and the times you automatically acquire it are the times when your attention is directed anywhere but the insight meter. Right. Like, most people beat Bloodborne without knowing that you get insight from just looking at bosses. Right. Which, you know, written on a board, that's, like, a fantastic idea. But I'm not looking at my bar. I am looking at the yeah. crazy It's thing. not even a bar. It's just a number. Yeah. And, it, and Dark it's Souls, very small and in the corner. <laughs> and Dark Souls sort of set up the expectation that, like, sometimes you'll get humanity for reasons that you don't really understand. Mm-hmm. So you don't really look for an explanation for but, insight, even though it's signaled well as like this but even in like dark souls though like the humanity number is way bigger oh yeah yeah this is just you still don't notice it a lot of the time yeah because like the souls versus blood echoes thing is they're basically the same ui element copy and pasted right whereas like the the humanity i mean souls ui does change a lot over the games yeah but it displays the same information and almost everything in bloodborne is smaller and that carries over to the now far more important than it even was in Dark Souls, humanity slash insight count, which just sits there and right. is innocuous. Is if you do listen really closely, you do hear like whispers. Yeah. 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 When you do when you collect or lose insight, and that is uh, I guess a signal, but like I think humanity has a little noise too. Yeah. Yeah. I've it's, never noticed. It's I think so. So that's the, the sort of the inside problems. I really wished that there was more opportunities and more things that inside affected, so you had more opportunities of learning of the association. Like maybe if like default enemies and zones began to go through weird transformations that you could more easily see. So like maybe I spend a whole bunch of inside and then come back to the starting zone, and now people don't have tentacles anymore, and I'm like, why? Why do you not have tentacles? Okay. Right. Things like that. And in the case of madness and frenzy. Frenzy's way too binary for that sort of theming. Yeah, it, the, the thing that you're supposed to tap into, um, which I, is not telegraph. I think it might be mentioned specifically in like an item description or something, but not something that is put in your face immediately, is that the more insight you have, 
so you've already had to draw lots of connections to understand the implications of what insight are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more insight you have, the more susceptible to frenzy you are. That determines how quickly the bar fills. Yeah. And whereas frenzy resistance determines how long the bar is. Um, so even like frenzy resistance and low insight could be equated by somebody who doesn't know what the like what is causing these things. And additionally, high insight and frenzy the opposite of frenzy. Having shitty gear <laughs> could also be equated yeah, in the yeah. same way. There's no way to really know. Yeah, I think frenzy might have been like my least favorite thing in the game. Because, like, I just didn't understand... Like, I, I didn't make any kind of connections as to, like, what it was doing or, like, how... Like, what the mechanics behind it were. Right. Because, like, for me, like, when I got to Bergenworth and they are like, the whatever I monsters... Yeah. Like, it's, it's, if it's one of those, shit. like... If I, like, fucked up and one of those, like jumped on my head it was ju- i just died like, oh yeah of my like it the bar just filled up and it did all my hp and it just killed so, me for i think this conversation has basically led up to us being like no one could ever blame you for that yeah for not knowing and then two even knowing that spending all of your insight and wearing like the best frenzy resistance gear if you get grabbed by a winter lantern you'll die yeah. You pretty much die guaranteed. Because it deals damage and then it explodes you. And then you're like, well, I guess I'm fine. That's what I meant by binary. Like, yeah. often, even in the mythos that they're trying to sort of evoke with the mechanic, the madness of the world, it, it's a slow process, it's gradual, and every instance of frenzy that is actually noticeable or means anything at all in this game happens in a second yeah. and fills up your meter immediately. Mm-hmm. Like, it. it I understand why they wanted some things that do that, that make frenzy, you know, like you see a winter lantern and your mind is fucked immediately. Right. That's fine. I almost wish that frenzy had occurred more often, and maybe uh, they did make it you drain slowly. <laughs> but, but, like, make frenzy almost like the equivalent of, not a poison in Dark Souls, but the way poison works in other games sometimes, where it's just a gradual build-up that's very hard to remove, and you have to be, like, actually worried about looking at these things, because I'm getting close to the point where the frenzy would just kill me. Right. Kind of situation. I, I, I really wanted it to be less of a, like, kind of vague, instantly kills you mechanic that as exists in the game now. Especially, especially when they made the choice that once you're out of a line of sight of things that induce frenzy, it still fills for a little while. Yeah, well, it's not even that. What it is is it, like, things affect a, uh, like, a damage over time, but, like, a frenzy over time on you. And when you leave line of sight, that begins decaying at a rate. Oh. Yeah. So you gain a frenzy, and the frenzy decays based on its regular decay rate, but then the effect of having frenzy applied decays, and so the bar kind of does that staggering thing. Yeah, I've seen it. Which is a cool visual effect yeah. for a bullshit mechanic that yeah. shouldn't be in the game. It's terrifying <laughs> conceptually. Like, I'd see writing that down and thinking, like, oh, that'll be like a tense moment, but in practice it just serves to obscure what the mechanic you're interacting is so much to the extent that it makes it yeah. not really interactable. Winter Lanterns, I think, are the forgivable exception to this until the DLC came out because for the most part 
anytime that there's a winter lantern, you can you can it, it there is a path that you can take to avoid fighting it. Yeah. And you can always like in Nightmare of Menzis when you come out of not Nightmare of Menzis, apologies, uh, Nightmare Frontier. Uh, when you come out from the cave, you can hear the singing. You drop if you drop down where there's a uh, the beasts, the ones that drop upgrade materials. Mm-hmm. If you drop down to fight it, the Winter Lantern will be above you, and you can walk along that path and go up around it. So it gives you signals as to how to avoid them. But then they started doing a thing in Nightmare of Menzis where when you're on the path to get the blood rock, there's really no way to avoid those ones on the bridge. And in the DLC, they just put them at the end of tunnels. And they're like, get fucked, scrub. There's like that whole like network of tunnels, and it's like, is it poison? It's like yeah, a poison, a poison swamp. Lake, you know? <laughs> and like a, like a cave network that like there's a rune in the back of. And if you try to go through it, there's like four of them in there that you might run into, and you're just like, oh, fuck. Yeah. yeah. It, how long have we been going here? Uh, an hour. Uh, an hour? I think... Mm. I was going to say, um, I agreed with your point that they uh, should have done more with the insight concepts. Whereas, like, it's... I feel like they should have had a point, like, where you acquired, like, a certain amount of insight, where either, like, like where you, like, had to go back to an earlier area, and it was more, like, dramatically different now. Yeah. And, like, they, they would have, like, signaled that, like the correlation between insight and things changing in some way. Yeah. Because, like, you, I think, like, you have that moment where you go back to Yarnum, and the guy that was, like, in the window that I totally missed the first time I was there... Yeah. Uh, ...has bursted out, and he's a beast now, and you're like, oh, shit, there's an oh, enemy yeah. here that there wasn't before. But, like, you don't, like, draw, like, any kind of connections as to, like, why that is. Yeah, that he came down with the... Yeah. He, he was down with, with the, the sickness. sickness. Like, they needed, like... God damn it. A moment... They needed a moment, like, like that, but even more obvious, like, for Insight. You know yeah. what's a problem that I just thought of that I can't believe didn't occur to me before with Insight? This sort of mechanical interaction that they're going for where we're trying to relate the amount of Insight you have to the amount of features in the world is horrible when applied to a currency. Like, because when, when it's a currency... You want to spend it. Well, not only do you want to spend it, but it's the game can't set up situations where you have to spend it. Like, everything that you get from inside, it's never, like, required progression materials. It's just stuff that's just, like, extras and bonuses, like that armor that that cool guy had. The, the game can't. The game doesn't ever force you into a position where they can force you to remove insight, and thus can't force you into a position where you see that lacking insight is different than having insight. Okay. Yeah. The... Especially, there are only two cutoff points in the game, other than the fact that it, it consistently decreases your like ability to gain uh, beasthood, and it, which nobody fucking uses anyway, and uh, it consistently increases your susceptibility to frenzy. There are only two points where it matters. Fifteen, where guys shoot balls out of their lamps, and those uh, the wild ones, the grass monsters, spawn in uh, Hemet Grove. And forty, when you can see the amygdala in Yarnum. And they reveal the amygdala automatically after you complete, uh, after the blood moon, and you wouldn't have the slightest fucking idea that the fact that you have 15 insight is the reason that those guys shoot balls or that those plant monsters spawn. In fact, if you're like me, 
you just assumed that those plant monsters were a regular enemy in Hammock Grove. There's no reason not to. Yeah. And actually another interesting little tidbit is that if you have no insight, when you do the Witches of Hemwick fight, you can just see them. Like, really? They don't disappear. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you could spend it all if you wanted to and make that fight easier. Oh, I didn't even, because I already... Because like, like, you're on, never going to have no insight. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah on that... Because uh, like, I already make that area like faster to go through by spending below 15 every time I go to Hemwick so that I don't have to deal with the other things. Uh, well, I, I will incorporate that into future playthroughs. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to maybe take a break and then talk about mechanics that aren't these two bars? Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, right before we started recording, uh, JJ came over a little bit early and uh, I had him go through a couple of my characters and sort of play around with some of the non I guess non-standard builds but I mean they're builds that are available in the game so maybe not non-standard but non-melee based builds builds that's what I went with uh, <laughs> so basically I wanted to get into uh, because we're going to talk about the actual mechanics of this game uh, and I think that this game does kind of a weird balance, especially when you compare it to Dark Souls. Because in this game, I, I, I feel as though there's not a ton of build variety that is available, but I think that because of that, almost as like that was the sacrifice that needed to be made, all of the weapons in this game are viable. There's not a single weapon that you would pick up and put levels into that you wouldn't be able to use. Uh, assuming, of course, that you have the stats required to use it. Yeah, I, I'm of the same mind on this. Like, in Dark Souls, there's such an overwhelming variety of weapons that, like, I tend to only use, like, one or two, because mm -hmm. there's just so, like, there's too many choices. But in Bloodborne, I found myself, like, sampling them all, because there's only, like, 20. Yeah. And, um... I, I, I think that's it just keeping it to a smaller number but still having like a nice variety is a better approach for a game like this I think I I do think the distribution between um, like number of options that exist in the game and times when you acquire them isn't quite it's like the clean curve that I would prefer I remember distinctly feeling in the early part of the game that I kept like looking for the skill weapon that I knew was going to exist. And because I didn't pick the cane at the front, I just never got it. Right. I mean, I could have bought the cane, I guess, but I assumed that, you know, I don't want the starter cane, I want to get, like, an actual cool man's weapon. But I never got the cool man's weapon. Instead, uh, I yeah. got, like, I used the spear for a while, expecting to upgrade past it. And The then... saw spear or the rifle spear? Saw spear. Okay. Yeah. And then got sort of sad when the thing that I was looking for never showed up and I was just like yep, Ludwig's yeah the, this is, yeah. the one thing that I have to to kind of go back on my statement with is skill is pretty underrepresented mm. there are lots of weapons that become 
way better than they normally would be if you level both strength and skill, but there are not a ton of weapons that focus on skill, and especially none early. The only ones that you really have the option for are the rifle spear, the saw spear even scales almost equally with strength. It does. Uh, oh my god, the cane is not is still not great. I'm sure there are people out there who have fucking like, like Kane's the best weapon in the game. You're a crazy person. Right, right. But my experience with the cane is that it's a piece of garbage, and they should have left it in the trash can where they made it. Come, come uh, on, come on. <laughs> you know you don't make canes in a trash can. You make canes in a fancier place. A cane than a factory. factory. Yeah, yeah. A factory. Uh, but then, them. if you like sprint for it, you could maybe get the right the the writer polish. The what? There's like a a, a German a, word. Yeah, weapon. in Kanehurst, in a chest in the first room. What does it look like? It's like a rapier. It looks like a writer polish. Yeah, yeah. kind of. Looks think like a writer polish. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's. But I don't. I I don't. Again, to clarify, I think the amount of variety here. In total, like once you get, especially like in the new game plus and things, is like about perfect. I don't think I want or need much more, especially after the DLC with all of its craziness. Yeah, the DLC introduced like almost doubled the number of weapons in the game. Yeah. Like it introduced a lot. And even like if you're a pure skill type of person, uh, by the time you hit new game plus, you have access to the Burial Blade and the Blades of Mercy, which are both incredible. Yeah but heavily focus on skill, but they're just late game items. One of them you literally can't get until you kill the, what is ostensibly the final boss. Um, is in some playthroughs the final boss. Yeah. yeah. Um, it has a similar feel to like Demon's Souls. Like it's It doles out the weapons slower, and there's a smaller number, yeah. but there there's, just, there's more of them in Bloodborne, I do think. It's a pretty ideal number. Yeah. I, I think that the... Well, one, the fact that they're trick weapons and are effectively two weapons in one is... that mitigates it some. Yeah. Uh, like, the you can get some variety within the same weapon that you have by just going through an area with two different styles of play. And... the one thing that I think they, they lose out on the ability to tell a story with their item drops. Because a lot of times in a Dark Souls game you can find... like, you'll find, like, an NPC who is a shell of their former selves and then you murder them because you murder everyone right? and they'll drop whatever weapon they were using it could be a named weapon and it could have a story about that person attached to it in mm-hmm. the form of an item description and that's that is one of the things that I really like about how Dark Souls tells its story right and there, there's even like less extreme examples where like you'll find a body that's like up on like a balcony and like you'll find a crossbow on it and like it makes sense that that person was up on that wall using a crossbow right so, yeah they do all that kind of like environmental storytelling yeah. through the item drops which you don't get when there's no there aren't like a billion weapons yeah you find lots of places that are just a kind of a nondescript corridor that has like some blood echoes at the end of it yeah as described at the beginning of the cast I think part of the reason that they could also get away with this is that they just had less story that they wanted to tell you. Not less stories and like less combined narrative, but less information that they wanted to convey because of the Lovecraft stuff. Right. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah, once you leave Yarnum, there isn't a ton to be said about what has uh, happened in the past. Because the things that are happening that are important are still happening, or you're living that experience. Yep. You get this, like, really neat sort of 
tragic story of uh, what were they called the the powder keg hunters in Old Yarnum. So if you look at like the the item descriptions for the weapons that they used and their badge and uh, things that Jura says, you can kind of piece together the story about like this sect that was in their own way sort of fighting the good fight in a world full of people who are not doing that and how they basically splintered off got murdered pretty abruptly (laughs) and like you find their workshop which is just populated by mostly corpses at this point Uh, but then once you get into the later game it's kind of like well you know <laughs> There's some giant monsters. I don't think we're worried about the individuals here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you do find like an Amygdalan arm that you can use as a weapon in a cave in the DLC, and that's kind of like lost. a story about one of the Amygdala. <laughs> and his, yeah, they were both their own arm all the true. time. Yeah. So that's He's even, probably still kicking. Honestly, <laughs> they just lost it. He, he, he dropped grew it. another. Yeah. It's fine. But um. No, you get a, a, a unique kind of flavor with the the narrative because, like, the Souls games and, like, a lot of other video games, they take place in a world that's, like, after the fall. Right. And Bloodborne places you during it. Mm. It kind of like a Groundhog Day style, it's always going on. Yeah. Until, well, not even until you stop it because... You basically perpetuate it in all three endings. Yeah. So yeah. it is a. Uh, but anyway, back to mechanics. Right. Well, yeah, that was just about the weapons. So I guess. God, I had I, I have a bunch of notes like regarding this kind of a thing. Go for it. Um, I think that the game, especially because of the, this like, smaller number of weapons that we were talking about and the smaller, variety in your builds, um makes the game a lot less obtuse mechanically than a Dark Souls game is. There are no unviable weapons, which Dark Souls has in spades. There are tons of weapons that aren't meant to be used by people. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, your armor doesn't have an effect because it's not armor, it's just, like, a coat. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Hunter garb. There aren't any, like, useless stats like resistance or in post-patch Dark Souls 3's luck. Uh... They're just everything that you do can ha- like you can still fuck up your build, I guess. But for the most part, everything you do can work in the game eventually, right. uh, as long as it, you know you are good. Yeah, there's there's some nice streamlining there. Yeah. But yeah, that that sort of I don't know. I, maybe th- this is really not something that you guys relate with because you probably didn't find Dark Souls that obtuse. Except no, for that one time that you ascended a weapon and ruined it. By it's accident. easy to forget when you're as far in the trench as we are, but like starting out one of these games for the first time, it's really hard to like grasp how everything works. Yeah, mm-hmm. especially there's lots of googling going on. They did it better here because by introducing the concept of trick weapons, you now know that like every weapon has a knack and it's going to be like totally different. But if you're going into just Dark Souls you'll get, like, a long sword and a broadsword, and if you're used to the RPG tropes and fantasy RPGs, you might just think the only difference between those two things is numbers, and thus you look at the two and go, my number on this one is better, and you never experiment. Right. This game circumvents that by making it explicit. Like, all the weapons are totally different, and every weapon has a different thing that it can do. Yeah, and, like, even, like, starting out, 
like a Dark Souls game, like y- you don't even like want to level up without looking up like information about the stats. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like this game has that a little bit too because they aren't typical. They aren't named like typical RPG stats. You're like, yeah. what the fuck is blood tinge? <laughs> what does that do? So you got a little bit of curiosity there, but it is, I think, easier to grasp. Yeah, I'm okay with there being like the two bottom stats, blood tinge and arcane, being like the I don't understand these things, but I might later stats. Yeah, like I, I'm cool with the way that the game sort of focuses you into like you have two options for damage, and because of the weapons they give you, no matter how many points you put in either of them, assuming you meet the requirements, you're going to be doing enough damage. Right, and yeah. stamina and your health bar. Like, like you said, there's no way to mess that up horribly. Yeah. Right. I, I could see somebody going in, though. I guess this is just, like, nitpicky stuff that they probably talked about when they designed it. But, like, um, I could see somebody, like, going in and thinking, like, okay, like, is strength go towards, like, my, my, my melee weapon and skill for the gun? Right. Or, like, you know, like, things like that. Where, like... And you're just going to have that in any game like this because they don't explain the stats. Yeah. yeah. They also reduced the sort of number intimidation compared to the Souls games right. by a, a lot, which, uh, frankly, I just should have appreciated. Especially how crazy it got by, like, Dark Souls 3, which was even after this lesson, strangely. The the madness of the community trying to figure out what... Uh, what was that stat? Poise? Uh, yeah, the madness of Dark uh, Souls yeah. 3 poise. Shows. That's not even a stat that's represented on the screen, though. I know, but I mean, <laughs> that's there's nothing a, equivalent to like poise and its interaction with combat, at least that I'm aware of in Bloodborne. Oh, right? in Blood- no, in Bloodborne there's no poise. They, there, you have a set amount of quote poise, but it operates a lot closer to how other uh, games do it, where it's yeah. I'm not even talking about yeah. like specifically knockback. I mean, there's no like crazy obtuse thing that you can influence with a build that you have to do months of testing to figure out how it interacts with the rest of the game. Right. You just get hit by a dog and f- stumble. And flinch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everything's, everything works the way that you kind of expect it to, at least by video game standards. Certainly better than by Souls game standards. Yeah. And I'm happy for that. That's also I, I also kind of appreciate the fact that there is no... Like, there's no weight limit, and your armor doesn't do anything outside of, like, minor changes in uh, in your resistance values. Because, one, it means that you don't have to, like, build a set to take on a particular thing. Yeah. If you're trying to min-max, you can do it. It might mitigate a little bit of damage. But I think the goal with that system is to make the... Make the there is no fat roll. Uh, barring like using right. the milkweed rune and the cost parasite where you do a floppy roll which is a little <laughs> different um, but the it, like you, there's no fat roll, there's no medium roll there's just the quick stepping and I think that that is sort of central to how this game operates oh yeah, they. That's, I imagine that was one of the biggest decisions to why they removed a lot of stuff like that is because they wanted to be able to build a game around the assumption that you can quick step constantly. Mm-hmm. And before we like kind of transition into that, uh, I want to th- I kind of miss the effects of the armors cuz like for me that was always kind of like a placebo effect yeah. in Dark Souls where like I felt like I could change out my armor and be like okay, 
now I got it. <laughs> like, you know, I always felt like that always like made me like feel like I did something to like better my chances of beating a boss or something. There also, I mean, there are also lots of other um, kind of even neater little aesthetic reasons for that the 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 armor system because there were there were certain things you could do in Dark Souls that made you feel a lot more resilient than you were, mm -hmm. and that alone can give you the confidence to take yeah. on a particularly difficult thing. Like, going from, like, wearing, like, cloth armor to wearing plate armor in a Dark Souls game changes so much because, like, suddenly you see less of your player model. You roll notably slower. Like, you can hear the chinking of your armor on the ground, which is, like, a, a huge increase in the amount of noise that you hear f from when you're not wearing that and you hear nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and in Bloodborne, it's, like, cobblestone streets, which... You, your armor doesn't change the way you sound as you move around. It just always sounds like you're walking home alone at night. Yep. It's like, that's the whole <laughs> feeling they're going for. They didn't compromise that. They made everything predictable by lowering the, the scope and diversity. Mm. But anyway, the quick step is great. Yeah, I love probably, it, it, it's probably like the first thing they conceptualized. One of them. Other right. than like maybe like... The concept yeah, like, of like the it went like don't the have a shield Lovecraft thing don't have a shield turn roll into your shield right I think actually because I have a really difficult time sort of pinpointing what seems to be the central basis of this game and like how they because obviously they were like we're gonna make a Dark Souls game because <laughs> they made a Dark Souls game uh, <laughs> but like what the differentiating factor is. And I think that plays into how well it kind of ties everything together, because you, as a player character, operate in this in the world of like horrible beasts and crowds and tons of people by moving quickly, not using a shield, and it it just feels tonally consistent in a way that like if they ported over the same armor mechanics from Dark Souls, it wouldn't. And not just because of the setting, but because of the feeling of being a lone, like, guy in a bunch of armor in a crowd of people with torches doesn't make sense. Yeah, right? Why would they give you the ability to feel safer if they don't want you to feel safe? Like, ever. Ever. Right. Right. It's like, I kind of, like, jerked Dark Souls off for this, kind of, uh, in our Dark Souls cast. But, like, this is the kind of thing that, like, From Software does, I think, better than most, like, any other developer, is they take a theme, like, they want to do, like, the quick-stepping and, like, the lighter clothes and make you, like, an agile, like, efficient, like, hunter, mm -hmm. and they, like, just intricately weave it in with everything else. Like, it fits the world and, like, the enemies, and, like, it all ties together really nicely. Yeah, it doesn't feel like Dark Souls, but without a shield. It feels like Bloodborne. Yes. Even if it does have a lot of the same mechanics as a Dark Souls game. And that's, I don't know. If we're talking about the mechanics of the of the dodge roll in this game, I think, I don't know. I feel like there's so much incentive in, like, in later Dark Souls games to sort of get the rolling and invincibility frame system of, of this type of action RPG down. But then I love that in Bloodborne, they just are like, here's a gun. And it's like, you really miss your shield? <laughs> when you got a cool gun? <laughs> Dude, the gun was them representing 
how powerless you are. I think mostly because no one's going to start the game with the parry master abilities or even awareness as parries is going to be a thing. I think, just like in my case, most people will accidentally parry at some point in their lives and be like, oh shit, that was cool. And I then think, try and repeat it. <laughs> I or, think that both of you overestimate how difficult it is to parry in this game. This is probably true. But all the point I'm trying to make is that they give you a gun and you're like, oh, shit, all these monsters, I have a shotgun. Shotgun does nothing. Yeah, a shotgun unfazed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Any of these creatures, you have to get in there with your meat slicer. That's the only way. Yeah. Or you could be like me and basically just throw the gun in the trash. <laughs> and, and only and two only, only use your weapon in long form. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm a strength build, like, shield guy in Dark Souls. And kind of do an equivalent in this game where, like, I just, like, no gun. Right. Like, the Your opposite shield of is backing up and charging an R2 yes. with the Hunter's Axe. Just throw dude, everyone spinning. away from me <laughs> yep. to buy you time. Yep. This makes sense, yeah. I, I do like that we basically all play the game uh, significantly differently, given the fact that there's so little in terms of build variety. Because uh, even... I mean, I guess it kind of drives home the point of the, the build variety. I have three different characters that are, like, in New Game Plus, and all of them focus on a different, like, stat. And so I have a quality build, and I have an arcane build, and I have a blood tinge build. But I play all of them, eh, kind of the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, mostly one-handed weapons. I parry all the time, and that is, like... That's just how I play Bloodborne. Yeah, they lowered the scope so that you have to do that no matter what, so they could design the encounters around the assumption that you do. Mm -hmm. They don't. Ha they've removed the problem of most of the Souls games where you can just be like the pyromancer and just like stand far away and throw threatening spells from relative safety right. and have like a limited ammo on that safety. Yeah. And now instead, <laughs> you they you just have to be there. You have to be in that shit. Yeah, it was, that's why I find it really odd, because even though I, I only played through the game as a quality build like most will, and you, like, you know, wanted to show off to me, like, all these crazy diverse builds, well, they certainly looked di really, really diverse. For the most part, Blood Tinge just seemed like, oh, everything's scary and it hurts you, but you play the same. Right. And Arcane is, you play the same different stats influence your damage and you have gimmicks. Lots of awesome gimmicks that you get to press selectively to do all this cool shit. Yeah. Uh, blood, I won't say much on Blood Tinge because it's my most recent character and I'm not like super familiar with it. But Blood Tinge is mostly just like hilariously high damage output but everything sucks to use because <laughs> it's just like painful in every way. Yeah. Uh, and also your guns do more damage but you won't use your guns because all the best uh, blood tinge weapons operate in two-handed mode. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, Arcane, I have a note, and it's quite brief. And the note says, Arcane is cool. Fuck Andy. <laughs> Disgust. <laughs> okay. My thing with Arcane is not that I don't think it's cool, as that statement might have suggested. It did seem to imply that, yeah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think like it's really hard to really like understand what Arcane is and how it works in this game, because like they're like it's not like you would expect where like in like in the video gamey sense that you would get like some kind of scroll and you would like learn the spell or equip it. It's like it's a tool. 
And right. like you get it, and you're like, "What is this?" And it expends bullets. Yeah, and expends bullets. Which are not bullets. usually like mages and bullets. Yeah, and then you're like, "Is this <laughs> is this a consumable item?" Like, like you're like the tiny tonitrus. What is this? Right. And like you just like put it in a box and you forget about it. I because you, like you're not really like incentivized to like experiment with like something that might be a consumable item in a Souls game. Oh yeah, you can experiment with them because they all require stat investment. Oh, and, and that all, too. And they're that all too. in item slots. This is absolutely a thing that's there for someone who either it has like they they're putting up a wall in front of magic items. So they're making you either dedicate to it really hard from the beginning, or they're just waiting until you've beaten the game once and want to be weird and experimental. Yeah. But I have to say, after playing through this game personally and sort of hearing you guys from the distance go through the arguments, have to agree, fuck Andy. They're magic items. It's really, really, they really strongly signal that they are just items that are magical instead of being like spells that you learn. Because in this setting, you do not have control over magical powers ever. Right. And that's part of the reason why they separated. And it was still really clearly signaled to me. Like, the moment that I looked at, like, that fucking grave hand with the skeletons on it and saw that it has, uh, like, a, a requirement to use, A, if it has a stat investment requirement, right. it's you, you don't get enough of these so that you know that they're not going to be consistently consumable. Which means, oh, this is some kind of cursed relic of a dark being that I, I am trying to circumvent for my own purposes. I guess... There are, That's fair. in I Andy's just... defense uh, on this topic, there are other elements of Arcane that are extremely not signaled and also kind of hard to figure out, like, just through experimentation. Like the element damage shit? Yeah, and especially with the element damage, also the fact that there are enemies that are weak to certain kinds of, of damage as well. And while Arcane is good at that, because you can apply, you can use gems and build up your damage for fire and shock. There are things like serrated weapons, which you have to like look at and be like, does that look like it's serrated? Yeah, probably. <laughs> and then way less clear, there are holy weapons that deal more damage to some types of enemies as well. Oh. So, and those are just things that like, somebody probably has to tell you or else you're not gonna figure that out. So maybe I exaggerate a little, and maybe it's clear that it's a magical item. But I still think it's, like, initially confusing enough when you first get it, and then you see that there is a stat requirement that you probably don't meet. You put it away, and you forget about it. Honestly, the weirdest thing to me about the system is, unless I'm misremembering things, how long it takes you to get your first magic item. I'm, if I'm correct, it's pretty late. In, it's you got lots of hours ahead of you before you get a thing that you can that can be magical. I assume partially because these are like signaled by the game to be like these crazy relics, and you don't get crazy relics five hours into a game. I'm trying to to remember. I believe the first one that you have access to is in the old hunter's workshop. Uh, you can get the hunter's bone. Ah, the speed thing. And I uh, think that that is. But that's something that a lot of people won't even find. True, but it is that is also a tool that almost everyone can use because yeah. there's a really low investment in arcane to use. Right. And then the second one you get is in Bergenworth, and that's the mm -hmm. phantasm shell, which applies arcane to your weapon. Right. If you're an arcane build, though, you probably don't even really want to use it. But that's we're gonna, that's a little bit more right, right, like. Right. 
specific. The only reason I brought this up specifically is because I find it odd to give magic items like so much importance that they have a, a dedicated stat on the stat screen, but it not being a thing that you can even conceivably do. Not even do, like, badly, but do at all right. until you get to, like, the turning point of the game right. when things start to go yeah, crazy. Like, kind of halfway through, depending on how much optional stuff you do. That's part of the reason why it's... why playing and, like, starting an arcane build is so hard, because your first tool doesn't deal damage. Your first item that actually allows you to deal damage that is arcane influenced? Well, the torch. You, your torch scales with arcane <laughs> really? as well. Uh, <laughs> because it is fire damage. But is a fire gem that you have to get from the brain sucker in lower cathedral ward. Which is like I mean, that's several... I mean, I guess it could be pretty quick into the game. I mean, but there's a lot of logical leaps that people won't make. Yeah. yeah. And those are intimidating to new players. That's yeah. tr- they're intimidating to me. Yes. Unless like, I'm playing the arcane character. Because it feels... It just feels shitty to have, like, something take... Like a limited Steel item currency from yeah, yeah, stolen yeah. from you. It is... Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not going to get into insight again. But it is weird that the only way to get insight after you, like, have finished the game is to, like, do chalice dungeons. That is a little bit lame. But chalice dungeons are lame as well, so we can... We'll, we'll talk about those yeah. in a little bit. Yeah. And then also, as just a brief note, blood tinge builds are impossible to start the game with because you have no damage dealing stats because you're not going to shoot guys to death with your 20 bullets uh, until Kanehurst. And so you have to sprint there and then somehow beat Martyr Ligarius at, like, level 22, right, by probably by Andy. summoning Andy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's who you beat. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, okay. Mm, man, that would have been impossible otherwise. Good job, Andy. Yeah, thanks, Andy, for basically soloing Martyr Ligarius. <laughs> that's all, yeah. No problem. Professor Flum was up to the task. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, a couple of things we talked about. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, are that shitty window, and some chalice dungeons, and a couple of other things. So, what do you think about the level design of this game? Um, I really enjoy the level design in this game. It might be my second favorite in the Soulsborne series. I just, I wish... And, like, the world design is also my second favorite. It, it feels more interconnected than Dark Souls 3 does. Um, it's it's almost there on the same level as Dark Souls 1, but not quite for me. But uh, that's still high accolades for me. Yeah, I would agree. I, I also don't really... I, I can't compare it to Dark Souls 1 in that way either. Like, Dark Souls 1 is just far and away... Some of the best, like... 3D level design ever. Yeah, as yeah. we have famously <laughs> said. I'm surprised this question didn't occur to me earlier. I'm trying to think through. I... Mm, early game, great. A+. Mm. plus. Continuing yeah. the lineage. Late game? Just inoffensive to me? Especially since the game kept consistently relying on, like, really interesting set-piece zones. Mm-hmm. The, the I thing, think... I was just going to say, I think that's kind of a thing that they might actually go for in these games. It always feels like the early areas are like the quote-unquote like more mundane ones. 
like in the world of the game. Right. And like it'll be like that for like the first third or half of the game. And then they'll just switch it to really weird areas where, like, the focus is on, like, how it looks and how it differentiates itself from the other areas. Yeah, you get and, your like, crystal the level, caves, yeah. your And the, the level giants. design can, like, suffer in certain areas because they're focused on other stuff. I think um, my biggest thing uh, in this, like, vein of, of how they design levels is that I think that... Something that they can't do because of the setting of Dark Souls. Um, the setting a From Software game in like a city or a location that has like distinct streets and alleyways is really good for how they like to distribute their encounters and importantly their items. Because you end up in these situations where you can kind of you start mapping it out. When you're in a forest, you kind of run by a tree. You're like, that sure is a tree. Um, I'll try and remember that. And then you go, and you end up walking through the same area a couple of times. And that's an extreme example, obviously. I was wondering if you were shooting on the forest or just foresty areas. I'm talking about the concept of forests and the fact that you get lost in them easily. Um, And that's how a lot of areas in Souls games tend to feel. Tomb of the Giants turned off the fucking lights. Mm-hmm. So it's like hard to navigate in there for that reason. And they do a good job of signaling where to go, and it's yeah. not, like, catastrophic. But the fact that you could literally just be like, oh, look, that is an alley that I've been in before. I go past, turn down the next alley, and you can find things. Helps it really kind of organize it. Right. I agree. Uh, I, I like the kind of variety you get from the more open areas, but I do agree that the level design is always at its strongest when it's in something like a city or a castle or like something where they can weave things together like they're known for doing. And they can have goddamn hidden doors and all sorts of And the looping like shortcuts and all that stuff. That's among the other things that are less obtuse in Bloodborne is that there aren't illusory walls in the main game. Right. Uh, There are mimics. And I mean, I like mimics. Are there mimics? They're no. not mimics. I thought I did think they're mimics. Okay, no. there there aren't mimics, but there are illusory walls in the chalice dungeons. If you really, yeah, mm-hmm. not Why? many. I found. I think one. We, we found one. Yeah, I found one of them. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, that's, that's it, a weird decision. But the chalice dungeons are full of weird decisions. The chalice dungeons are themselves a large weird decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I do agree that once you get into the later areas. Uh, the thing that I want to shit on the most, uh, obviously, is the Nightmare Frontier, which I think is just a is like a garb is it's a dumpster fire of an area. A dumpster fire. It is just unfun. Like I love the uh, the Forbidden Woods in comparison to the fucking Nightmare Frontier. What's so, what's so offensive about the Nightmare Frontier? Everything about the Nightmare Frontier is terrible. One, From Software loves a poison swamp. They sure love a poison swamp. They put yeah. one in every game. That's really something they should stop doing. I agree. Well, poison swamps are inherently punishing and not fun for the yeah, player. Like, it's something that like fit in like Demon Souls and Dark Souls One, yeah. but like everything else, it's been really forced. Mm-hmm. And in this one, it doesn't even make sense because it's like weird green water in yeah. an area that like, doesn't have like sensical architecture. Green acid water, right? Full of like just horrible like. It's sort of like disemboweled organ beasts that yeah. scream at you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, while I tend to like be 
more like wowed and wooed by uh, weird fantasy landscapes, I'm kind of okay with the Nightmare Frontier. But it is probably the worst area in the game. Yeah. So then, uh, just to clarify, is your problem just that there are shitty acid swamps? Yeah. Shitty acid well, swamps the whole is the first place. Thing. Is an acid swamp, uh, right? Like huge. <laughs> it's a large amount of acid swamp. <laughs> it's an air. It's the area that has the highest density of winter lanterns, mm. which we've already discussed. Frenzy is kind of a bullshit status because uh, it's just blood loss from Dark Souls, but it fills up. Unendingly, and super fast, really quick. Uh, <laughs> it's got trolls that throw huge boulders at you. Yeah, that's yeah. They're, they're giants that throw rocks at you that are one hit kill. Pretty much up until level like ninety. Like you'll get one shot if you get hit by one of the boulders, and the boulders hit, shatter, and then turn into these like slow motion physics objects that bloom out from the impact site. And if you like look at one of them. <laughs> You take, like, half your health and stumble and probably get hit by one. Because there's another giant on another cliff a little bit up there. You can't move around without getting stuck on gravestones all over the fucking place. There are a lot of fucking gravestones around town, yeah. Yeah. And not only that, but, like, one of the best runes in the game and uh, one of the coolest bosses in the game are in this fucking area. And so I go through it every goddamn time. It is one nightmare of a frontier. Yeah. Yeah, there's too many inconveniences. Like, it feels like it was designed to be, like, an annoying gauntlet to go through. Yeah. It has a shortcut, like, a weird shortcut, where you, like, kick down a... Well, you don't kick, you walk down, like, this plank, and it breaks and falls. And it's the most useless fucking shortcut in the world. <laughs> because, you, like, the main path is to go through the poison swamp to the other side and get on that elevator... Mm-hmm. But this like wraps around and just puts you back at the start, and all it does is bypass like the rock throwing area, which is an optional area in the in this other optional area. You sounded based on your like accusation of me only not liking poison swamps, like you were going to be defensive. Oh no, I'm frontier. I you just wanted me to be more thorough. Yeah, I wanted you to be more thorough, and I mostly found it. Inoffensive. Maybe I'm just numb to the concept of poison swamps at this point. I didn't think it was good. Certainly, I thought it was some wasted potential. Yeah, because I, I agree with that. yeah, you leave the crazy lecture hall, and I'm ready for more madness. The and lecture hall's so good too. It is yeah, very good. Very cool. But I leave the lecture hall, get to this place, see the crazy colors and the way everything works and hexagonal terrain and everything, <laughs> and I'm ready for anything. And it's just a shitty swamp. People throw rocks at me. Yep. I I really yep. wanted there to be like mind bending madness out in the night. There should. Frontier. I feel like there should rocks. have been like some kind of like transition between the two areas too. Like, I think it's weird that you just, like, come out of a lecture hall and then you're just, like, in a green swamp. Yeah, you get, like, like sucked like a, into... Like a neon green. <laughs> like, it's just kind of jarring. It is. I, I, yeah, I think it's supposed to be. They right. lazy portaled it. Yeah. what they did. Like, because, like, they're usually so good the about... lazy portal. They're yeah. usually really good about that kind of stuff, like, blending one area to the next, and mm. they just don't do it at all there. Yeah. The, the thing they're going for, and I'll forgive them for this a little bit, but not a lot, uh, is that the Nightmare areas, so the Hunter's Nightmare, the Nightmare Frontier, and the Nightmare of Menzis, are not... They're on, like, a separate plane from reality. Right. Uh, similarly to the hunter's dream, uh, and so, t- 
they do a good job getting you to the Nightmare of Menzies because they have you actually interact with Mikolash, or at least his corpse. Um, but then, with this one, they were kind of like, we have to get him there, but I don't know. Lazy portal. Yeah. Walk out the door. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. it, it would be incredibly difficult to get the player to there yeah. in a way that Even makes if there was just sense. like some you kind of, uh, like, like with Mikolaj, there's just some kind of like crazy item or rune or anything that you like touched and it like sucked you in or something. Yeah. Well, you, you get taken there by, by an Amigdal. But you don't need or want it to make sense. That's no. the worst thing. Imagine if you open the lecture <laughs> hall doors and it's just like straight blackness. Just nothing. No portal. In abyss. Just ab- That's just what JJ wants. He wants, <laughs> he wants it to open the lecture hall doors into the abyss. abyss yeah. I did. I, and I was going to, you walk out of the, you walk out into the abyss and then you fall for like way too long and then you land in a cave. But like it's at the top, and then you look up and you realize that the cave actually has like walls and shit, and you can't see anything. Uh, yeah, and then okay. you walk out of the cave, and it's the nightmare frontier. No, yeah. it's just a black abyss. <laughs> yeah, but and, it, yeah, it's, it's, super it's like it's just the abyss. There's like enemies with red eyes, and like they shoot like black flames at you and stuff. <laughs> and like you get to the bottom, and there's like uh, manis, <laughs> <laughs> and like Sith is there. All right, you definitely got around this one. But I just but no, that actually sounds way better. If yeah, there was some kind of transition like that. A transition that was like constant, Weird that made much. no sense yeah. at all. That yeah. would be that like would a Majora's Mask thing. Like you fall down like a like a rabbit hole. Right. Yeah. Like a dark version of like Alice in Wonderland or some shit. Yeah. So fuck the Nightmare Frontier. So why do you like Amigdala so much? Oh, this is just a good boss fight. I like how different it is from other bosses because, I mean, Dark Souls has been attempting to get away from the walk 180 degrees and hit them in the ass over and over again boss fights mm-hmm. since the first one where that was like 90% of the boss fights. Uh, and Bloodborne starts out with a boss where you get behind it and hit it in the ass. And then a hunter, which is basically an NPC fight, which you'll see a bunch of other times in the game, but then starts to try and differentiate things a little bit. And I think Amigdala is one of my favorite examples of it because you basically can't hit it in the ass or the legs. It's only really weak in the arms and in its face. And the challenge, especially as a melee character, and the like comical ease with a ranged character to hit Amigdala in the face makes the boss fight like challenging and it it's sort of how I want to play the game where you have to stay close to it but it has like these wide reaching attacks that are like you get to sort of demonstrate your ability to roll through things right as opposed to like staying way back then running in to make an attack cuz it's not possible with Amigdala it's certainly not in the second phase which is my, probably my favorite memory for it i managed to beat it on my first try just by coincidence, uh, Rachel was watching me go through the Nightmare Frontier because it was fucking weird and she wanted to see if she could figure out what was going on. Uh, but the stage two encounter, I was ma- I was managing to get in and out because I played this game defensively by Bloodborne standards probably a lot, which my, made my, the second yeah. transition so goddamn alarming, not only when it rips its own arms off, but doubles its reach. Which is awesome. Oh, it's way. great. Yeah. Uh, and then it was just sort of a panicked blackout as it was dodging around and trying to slash the creature up. So yeah, also also like that guy. Just was curious. Yeah. yeah, I remember that boss being like super hard. It is. It's it, there's. I think for a melee character that 
boss should be really hard. Yeah, like, I, think I remember Jay-Z's thinking that. Yeah, I remember thinking <laughs> that like it was unreasonably hard for a melee character, but like I don't really. I feel like I summoned you. Like we were playing together. Like when I did the Nightmare Frontier. Mm-hmm. So I feel like so we didn't take too many tries. But like on my own. It's like knowing that it was an optional area. Like it might have been hard enough that I just would have been like, "Fuck it," and just like and left. just left. Especially since like, the, something the that, like, reward you get yeah, is a chalice. Something that I like, could have beaten, but probably just wouldn't have wanted to put forth the effort to yeah. do. Yeah. So, any other standout areas before we get to standout bosses? Only thing for me is I we did some preliminary wood shitting. I mean, there are lots of because we've talked about some things that we didn't like. But there are a lot of these areas that I absolutely love. Like, my favorite areas in the series really are in this game. Uh, man, Kanehurst is incredible. Kanehurst is my personal favorite area. Yeah. I think that Kanehurst does Dark Souls better than Dark Souls does Dark Souls half the time. When you're, like, in, like, the ornate fucking castle, mm-hmm. and they're just, like, weeping ghosts around you. It's pretty regal as shit, yeah. Yeah, it's super good. Uh, the I, ending of Canehurst is wonderful as well, when you do the little, like, roof climbing. I was oh, a fan yeah. of that. Yeah, that was cool. Mm-hmm. That was, um, yeah. And also, I like the area outside of um, Ligaris' boss room, because it has those railings that you could hop up on top of and that's where I put that uh, <laughs> oh. Oh. that note yeah I see um yeah that that fight's good and then also once you get into where um I'm gonna call her Rosaria but I don't remember what her actual name is here's the uh the Queen of the Vobloods she is uh, like that whole area is cool I like that she's sitting in a room with like I don't know 15 million statues <laughs> it's a great secret area yeah um, yeah, that, that's Kane Harris, one of my favorite areas in the game. I really, I actually like The Nightmare of Menzis as much as I dislike The Nightmare I of Menzis. I like Frontier. The Nightmare of Menzis. Me too. I think it's one of the, probably the best implementation they could have done with the version of Madness that they shipped. Yeah. I ended up really liking Yargul, the Unseen, Unseen Village. Because, like, as soon as, like, it's, like, the Bagmen show up, that like, I ran right into one and got taken there. And, yeah. like... That like that was a like one of my favorite moments of the game is like being wake taken up in the there. Jail. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was really impactful for me. Early Yargul was was neat. I think once you return there after the Blood Moon Yargul, mm-hmm. it's a little strange. I have mixed <laughs> feelings of it. It's like they took the old version of Yargul, uh, cut out the like jail part that was cool and interesting, and then they just like exploded a butcher shop <laughs> and rained meats on the street. Yeah. But they have like, but no, the whole mechanic of you everything respawns constantly like mm-hmm. really constantly so you have to run through all of the chaos and kill all the bell ladies. Which also includes not only enemies but fucking lasers that are just coming from the sky. Yeah. That's I mean it's nice and chaotic but it, it verged a little bit it verged it a little bit too much on the like unplanned madness I, that I generally don't come to these sort of games for. Could be a personal thing, but I, I wasn't super attached yeah. to Yargle for that reason. What made it cool the first time you went there is like it. It felt like you went like it's called the Unseen Village. So I'm sure this is exactly what they were going for. But like it feels like you stumbled upon a place you're not supposed to be. Oh yeah. And like you're like walking around and like just like some pig enemies like patrolling the streets. Like it's like. 
not out to just murder the shit out of you like when you go there the second time. Yeah. So you kind of feel like you're like behind enemy lines and like you're seeing stuff that like you're not meant to see. That's a super good way of putting it. Like saying that you feel like you're behind enemy lines. Because <laughs> like when you get taken there initially because that starts up right after you kill Amelia. Yeah, that's it. And you can get taken there basically at level like, I don't know, yeah, I think that's what happened to me. And, and you get slaughtered by those guys if you yep. if you try to engage. But yeah. what I ended up doing though is like I found a way to reliably kill one of the pigs and like went up like literally like twenty levels in like <laughs> an hour or like half an hour, like really yeah. fast. But also I, the second part of Yargo does get a. I assume you got snatched at some point. I did, but I, I had a disappointing snatch experience. I. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> and then also a really bad experience with the bag. Yeah. Just, we're just going to, for the kids, we're just going to assume we're talking about the Guy Ritchie movie Snatch. No, yeah. Yeah. So, so I got stolen. And then I fought my way back to the lamp. And after uh, I left there, because I was terrified, I was like, oh, I'll come back here later. And then didn't come back until I came back to Yarkle from the front the door. Oh, and then yeah. I couldn't teleport back after that point because I was like, wait, I reached the point where the lantern should be and it's not here anymore. And I clicked on it. I was like, you can't, kill, you can't go back there anymore, says the video game. Yeah. Well, that's because the, the 300 broke the lamp. Yep, I know. Which is weird. Why does nobody else break the lamp? It's a good question. <laughs> Why are they the only ones who thought of that? Yeah, that actually seems like you could do something really cool with that. Like, even yeah. in Dark Souls, like, somebody just puts out one of the bonfires and you yeah. can't use it anymore. It's almost like that they neat. did that in the first game. Did they? Well, when no, they kill the kills the firekeeper. He didn't, like... I think the idea that somebody could, like, just walk up to one of, like, the bonfires... And just, like, kick some and, dirt over And it. just put it out? <laughs> yeah. Like, because, like, like, not all of them have fire keepers. True. There's, a, there's an elegance to, like, the fact that it's just some, like, errant vagrancy. Like, just some guy is just like, fuck this thing. Yeah. <laughs> hey, break the lamp. Like, <laughs> But, um... No, I... I the, what, my experience with it, like, it seems almost impossible that you could not, like, be taken there and, like need to explore it. Right. Like, I, yeah, you, you would just leave. I just straight, straight, straight cowardice on my part. I guess. I, I definitely got snatched my first I'm, like I got, like, mercilessly slaughtered by the hunters and, like, they like, kept coming back yeah. and trying to, like, see as much of it as I could. Mm. But the, uh... The, the reason I think it's important that you actually get taken there before you go there originally, at least in your, your first playthrough, is that... You end up, like, with the situation where you feel like you know the place because you've been there, and then, like, it slow Like, once you get to the actual, like, the Hypogean jail, apparently means underground jail, huh. uh, <laughs> area that the lamp is now broken, you start noticing, like, okay, so there are three hunters, and this, this is a hard encounter. You're probably going to end up fighting these guys, like, a bunch of times. And then you're going to be like, okay, when I go outside, he's going to be a pig. And then out crawls like a treasure chest that's just full of body parts. Mm-hmm. And then you're not like, oh, something has gone horribly wrong in the meantime. Right. And There's I think like that a, that's like a really strong element of it. But yeah. Yeah, it's, I it's never a even, street for I the most never part. saw the pigs. Uh, okay. Yeah, see, um. Fucking, what was I gonna say? Yeah, it's like, and you, you come back to, you go, you start in a different place than, than when you come back to the, the area later in the game. And there's a nice return to where you were because, like, you come to it through a different way, and you're like, "Oh, I'm here now," yeah. but it's different. Like it, it, it uh, 
definitely enhances that. Yeah. And that honestly, I think a lot of my other favorite areas in the game are going to be defined by their bosses, with the exception of uh, the research hall from the DLC. Oh, is that the the the, the madness place where the, all the crazy people are? Yes. Oh, good, because that was the one place that I wanted to bring up as an independent zone. That yeah, was I, I think that it is incredibly good. Uh, and yes, the the patients are called enlarged heads. It's a really good name. Uh, almost as descriptive. Yeah, almost as descriptive as crazed crows. <laughs> unfortunately, the <laughs> official name for that enemy. Uh, yeah, I mean, fuck. We've both now talked about an area that we liked, so you can. Oh, explain yeah. your love of this game, or this level. Uh, area, the whole DLC does this great job of constantly building up to the present of this secret, and partially because I think I was a little bit disappointed by the execution of the fishing hamlet and not really getting the references to the fishing hamlet, Fair. I sort of considered that like the secret of the DLC, and I loved it. I didn't want there to be anything else. I didn't want to know the why the bags... The the existence of the fishing hamlet? no. Well, that's what I that's what I thought it was. Because even after you get through that, it, they maybe I'm, maybe I'm confusing things. I always I interpreted the fishing hamlet as the thing that was secret because it's fucking locked behind the secret clock yeah, madness, yeah. and it's the it's the place that the cool girl is actually guarding. Yeah, no, you were correct. I was just because that's I wouldn't have initially put that together in my first playthrough. Oh yeah, yeah, but yeah. but going to this zone was the thing that actually made like the full lasting impression of the DLC. How. How terrifying the like large bag heads are! All of the dialogue, just every piece of dialogue in that zone. <laughs> finding the bags, finding the girl who needs the bags, acquiring the cauliflower. Yep. Is <laughs> man, acquiring the cauliflower, <laughs> finding the bags. It's like you. This is this whole area is like grocery shopping. It really yes. is. Yeah. It's grocery shopping. <laughs> yes. That it is. The area has. A great sense of atmosphere. <laughs> it does. And, yeah. You know that there's, like, even a cool, like, little side quest area to it where you can, like, get the key and go out front and fight all of those uh, spell slingers? Yep. <laughs> yeah. There's just, it's, it's almost like you're working your way through a puzzle when yeah. you're trying to navigate the place. And I love things that can be designed that intricate, that intricately. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of the whole tourney staircase thing that they're do that they bring like to bring back. Well it can't be a puzzle if there's not a part that you can Yeah, move. I know. Like I, I don't hate it or you anything. You only move it once though. <laughs> no, it's like you you have a Rubik's Cube <laughs> that is one turn away from being solved and then locks when you turn. <laughs> I believe they call those jars mostly. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. I, I, even, I feel like that about uh the Duke's archives in Dark Souls though. Like it just kinda feels like it's missing something. Like it's kind of half baked, but yeah. I agree that it is it is a Duke's Archives reminiscent area yeah. for sure. Yeah, and I think a lot of the reasons that I like the area are a lot of because of the reasons that I like the Duke's Archives as well. I also uh, like the Duke's Archives though. Like they're good in spite of that. Yeah, element. I think that there are lots of things that the Duke's Archives does better. I also think there are things that this area does better. So it's right. it's kind of a toss up because I like both those areas a lot. And the tone made, it stays strong all the way up to the boss of this area, even if the boss isn't very. Mechanically interesting, I don't think. I mean, it's certainly a, 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 a sort of what, not spiff. What's the actual word other than spiff? <laughs> spiff riff. Is not a word. Riff, no, riff is the okay. word. It's certainly a riff in that you're you're like now you're fighting a whole bunch of 
crazy little moon summon people. And yeah, the uh, living failures. The people who were attempted to be turned into great ones. I know. And Obviously that's, fucked up. That's the actual cool part, because now you can tell that they're like attempted imitations of the aliens you see, but with like hilarious deflated failure heads. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a... Uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> I think, I mean, we've all done an era, and I've basically said, I love everything except for two. <laughs> uh, I don't know, if, if we want to go into bosses... I agree. And and we want to start with that statement that you erroneously made that said that the boss of this area is not mechanically interesting. There are two bosses of this area... And that one... And it- one of them is my favorite boss in the Soulsborne series. <laughs> it's the living failures. <laughs> <laughs> that boss sucks. <laughs> Uh, Maria is incredible. Maria is almost perfect. Alright, why? Uh, only because I don't <laughs> think I'm capable of conceiving of perfection. Uh, <laughs> wow. Okay, alright. That's pretty high for She's not an 11 out of 10. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Maria's a really good boss, and I think that the thing that makes Maria so good is the fact that universally, this game has bosses with multiple phases but Maria I feel like is the one that the phases just ramp up the way that she fights and doesn't introduce like a bunch of crazy new stuff and so it's pretty easy to like kind of learn and then it entirely relies upon you just being better every time you go in in order to finally beat her you know what it reminded me a ton of since I went through these games in the opposite order Uh, the Abyss Watchers yeah it as, was, as you note, I love the Abyss Watchers as well. Yep, and I kind of love this for almost all of the same reasons. It lacks, obviously, the sort of opening gimmickiness of Abyss Watchers and figuring that out, but just mechanically interacting with the individual boss itself is roughly the same, but in a high-speed, Bloodborne dueling style. And Bloodborne does one-on-one duels, I think, generally better than Souls anyway which really accents this all the more. I really like the Maria boss fight, but I tend to not like these kind of bosses as much. Like, I don't like the hunter fights that much. Uh, Like, I don't know. It is really great, though. I mean, I don't really have too much to say about it. It's one of the more memorable fights. It's great. It's one of the best, like, mechanically speaking. Maria has a lot going for that is like almost unfair in contrast to other bosses because there's a lot of build up to her. Mm-hmm. She has like within it's like a mini Gwyn where like you have this whole area where everyone is talking about her. Yep. And then you go fight her. Whereas like Gwyn had a whole game. Yeah. She's right. got this one area. But everyone's talking about Maria. So you're like being built up to understand like what she is to these people. Then you go in, the boss fight's really cool, and then there's tons well, of shit after that, because you get a cool cutscene that introduces her, mm-hmm. you get the cool fight itself, and then afterward you're left with all of the implications of who Maria actually is. Right. So she's fully fleshed out in like every way, in a way that a lot of bosses just are not. Right. Yeah. And I also think the living failures being right before her is a great fake-out. Oh yeah. That is also true. And... I don't, I don't expect know, her to I don't know out. what percentage of people, like, just recognize her immediately like I did. No, oh, But, okay. like, that also enhanced it for me. I was like, you only see, like, this much of her face, but I was like, 
she looks like the doll. That's a doll. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, you said that immediately. Because yeah. I watched you play through the whole day. I'll save for the yeah. first time. And first thing out of his mouth, he said, like, looks like the doll. I was like, because <laughs> like I had to be like I, I had to like put together the other clues, like the old hunter's bone being next to that grave that the doll stands at. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is a doll. But, and he just facial recognition like a goddamn computer. <laughs> <laughs> so that enhanced it for me as well. Yeah. Just super good. Just and I also good. like her garb that you get. Oh, that's that true. That you can get. It's very pretty. The cat is pretty sweet. Sticking to DLC bosses, uh, I think Ludwig might be my standout. That's Ludwig's the first DLC boss, right? I, I, yeah, I get some of the proper names confused. The, uh, yeah, Ludwig the Accursed. Yeah, yeah. The horrible meat creature. I don't, there's no accurate description of what Ludwig he is. He kind of looks like a horse. He's a horse. Yeah, he yeah. looks like a horse. He's got a long face and he's got like kind of a... And he's got hooves, like a hoof. he? And he's got yeah. that second hey, maggot hoof. head. Yeah. That, like like the, horses. Dead yeah. horses, yeah. That yeah. huge like teeth maw that just sort of comes out of one shoulder. Yeah. Oh, he doesn't have teeth. It's just like it. It's undulating, and inside of its mouth is just like eyeballs? hundreds of eyeballs. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah that was it. I, sorry, I sometimes misrepresent what horses look like <laughs> from <laughs> a distance. Yeah. And, uh, confuse the teeth for the eyes. Yeah, this is. Uh, I think the the comparison, especially between Maria and and Ludwig, is, is like is really representative of not just Bloodborne but the series as a whole, where it's like basically bosses come down to like. A fight with somebody who's really good and has a similar moveset to you, and a fight with like a horrible monster. Yeah. And I think the reason that I like these games so much, and why, even though the bosses are like some of my least favorite parts of the game, uh, that I still like them because I really like the hunter fights styled bosses, and I also like to fight a big monster. And this game has both. And man, am I shitty at fighting Ludwig. Oh, everyone's shitty at fighting Ludwig. I and he's not shitty at fighting Ludwig. What? Yeah. Like, three tries? Three, two, maybe? Yeah. I spent a day. Yeah. Just dawn to dusk yeah. a day. Chad, Chad, <laughs> Chad thought he was, like, super hard, and I thought he was just, like, an average difficulty boss. How do you get past the first form consistently? I, it's been a while. I don't I you remember win? strategy. Yeah, who are you? He you didn't like good. walk in with a purpose. He just kind of walked in and killed it. You like, will it tell me your lost <laughs> secrets. I'll, I'll, I'll go play it again. I'll do another playthrough and I'll tell you. Yeah. Well, the one thing that I mean, I think you. I would say dodge out of the way if it's attacked, <laughs> <laughs> and then come back in close and put it. Ludwig like a, does something that I think a lot of the huge monster bosses in this game don't that I sort of missed from them especially in comparison to the other games uh, in from software's catalog which is it turns from the crazy raging beast that you're constantly encountering in this game of varying sizes and shapes and then makes it like an epic man and I loved that I loved the form transition and because it gave him so much personality that he lacked initially like because I knew who Ludric was narratively going in there and I walk in the door, and I'm like, oh, that's what became of this guy. But, like, he's not a person anymore. There's no personality being displayed by Form 1 Ludwig. Correct. He, he's a horse murderer, and that's not, not that, one who murders right, horses. Yeah, a horse, that horse adjective murderer yeah. uh, profession. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's all he does. And then, he gets, and then the transition starts, and that cutscene plays, and I was in love. Maybe my single favorite narrative moment of the whole of Bloodborne 
when Ludwig just turns into a guy who pretends that he's not mostly horse now <laughs> and has his enormous great sword and is just an awesome, cool, slow guy. Yeah, what a great not forced way to put in the Moonlight Greatsword. Right. Holy shit, yes. Yeah. Uh, props. The music, everything about that. The music is, and knowing me, I'm not like, I don't remember this kind of music. Ludwig's music post-transformation, really good. Yeah. Incredible, like, memorable. Uh, Man. It's funny, because the next boss I'm going to talk about is uh, the other DLC boss in uh, The Orphan of Kos. Which I think is a batshit insane. Yeah, uh, it is the second grossest boss uh, in the game by a pretty wide margin. What's the grossest one? Oh, the grossest boss is the one reborn. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember I was on Skype with you, and I was like, I don't think they needed to put the like M for mature rating on this game. They could have just put a picture of the <laughs> one reborn and been like, if you're okay seeing this, then you'll be fine. Yeah. Because it's just, like, a bunch of bodies that vomit bodies on you. <laughs> and, like, it, like, seesaws back and forth between which one is its head. And it's just, like... It's like a mutant body cat dog. Yeah, everything about that dude is just, is just like, really gross. Yeah. It just get, you Like, he oozes puddles that you get stuck in. Like... What like what else could they have possibly? He could have like flicked boogers at you. Like that's the only thing. <laughs> Maybe he know. was. You said that. You couldn't tell. Like, all of the bodies were like individually. It was just like bloody boogers. mucus. Yeah. <laughs> that's what all the the slime was. Basically, they just they pulled out all of the steps. Yes. And yeah. Anyway, Orbit of is just gross because of his implications. But uh, that boss is probably one of the hardest like one on one like regular guy quote unquote fights in the game and I uh man has that guy been like a horrible blockade for me on multiple characters mm-hmm. there's no way to make him easy yeah he's this game's like Calamite or this game's like uh, Nameless King for right. me like a boss that like if you wouldn't have helped me with I would have walked in tried twice and been like oh I don't need to beat this <laughs> <laughs> and just left and not come back. Dude, I think I, I forget if I told both of you guys this before, but I completely did not have that experience, but I can't really speak to it confidently because I never really pressed up against the wall. I never beat the orphan because I accidentally beat the game, not expecting the game to finish at that point. Yeah. But I got to phase two on like a bunch of different tries. It just seemed it seemed like a fair, normal boss to me. He had a lot of he had a lot of large windows for stuff, assuming you're on the right side of his body. Yeah, I think my biggest thing is, like, is I had this problem with Maria, too. It's just, like, his attacks have such a huge range. They do. And, like, that really fucks with me. Also, and this is probably related in some way to the Ridley fight from the last podcast, mm-hmm. but when I, like, get super tense when a boss shrieks at me, and the orphan <laughs> is just, like, in a constant state of, like, emitting really high-pitched white noise. Oh, yeah. It is not like to be born. No. He's that well, <laughs> or something. Un- whatever the fuck happened. There's just a corpse, <laughs> and he's there, and he's holding, apparently, like, a placental sack. Yeah. And it's pretty gross, and 
He is really king at all times, and then he sprouts wings and he shrieks louder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is just vaguely unpleasant. We should move on to a to a different boss yeah. that's more pleasant. Which I'm sure Bloodborne has lots of lots of pleasant Pleasant but uh the boss of um I put air quotes. I don't know why I did that and not mention it. <laughs> uh the boss of uh Upper Cathedral Ward is pretty pleasant. It's basically a walk in the park. <laughs> Fucking uh what are they uh, called? Celestia the Celestial Emissary. Yeah, yeah. The second fake out boss placement yeah. of the game. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, totally unpleasant Ibritus uh <laughs> was still a fun boss. It, it's fun up until you get charged and one hit killed. And that's where it stops being fun and mm. then you're you're just sad for the most part. I never got hit by your charge ever. So it's good. Yeah. You probably just me. had a good time then. I did. Yeah. I, I honestly did. I wish I expected to learn more about her later or anything about the altar. I looked up later yeah, through Lord. I think she's just like supposed to be like a secret Easter egg boss. Yeah, just a left behind creature. Mm-hmm. Her, her, yeah, her story is related to the Chalice Dungeons, so I yeah, uh, yep. to ignore those things. I guess this might be something that like I don't know how you guys if you agree or not, but I found this game like we've already talked about like the standouts in my mind, which there were a handful, but. This game, I think, has a lot less... Like, I like the bosses in this game a lot less than I do in the other games, because I feel like this game focuses more on, like, mechanically satisfying bosses and has less bosses that are, like... I guess I would say like, experiences, mm-hmm. like, ones that, like... Yes, that, like, leave you thinking about them, like, after you do them, like, Sif. That's what I was trying to get at with the Ludwig fight. Yeah, Ludwig is a good one. I think Amelia kind of has that feel as well. Uh, and, like, there's a handful that do it in this game, like, in, like Maria and Orphan of Cost, but those are all DLC. I, I but, actually uh, never once thought about Vicar Amelia after the boss fight. Yeah, uh, see, I, I think she's... <laughs> there's something really memorable about that fight to me. I love the fight, and I, I, I like the boss, and I like that opening cutscene and everything. Maybe it just feels significant. I don't know. It definitely does. But um, she even has a personality, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that they did that in comparison to the other horrible monstrosities that you. Encounter. Yeah, she does. She feels like she, there's more of a person still inside there. Right. She doesn't behave like a thing that's just fucking hunting you. She behaves like a thing that wants you to leave a whole lot. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's dealing with fight and everything. Yeah. Yeah, I think that this game has too many bosses that just feel like video game bosses unless like they're like significant to like the story as much as i love shadow of yarnum it is kind of straight up a video game boss isn't it yeah oh, shadow of yarnum is like yeah it's like a D party as a boss yeah it's like it is just gaming as a boss yeah like bloodstar <laughs> beast cleric beast bloodstar beast is my like favorite thing Right now, uh, you like shaking dudes, just dudes. Who just I think Bloodstar Beast, like don't get me wrong, is like super fun to fight. Right? Yeah, but like it, it leaves no impact on you. Yeah. Agreed. The thing with the the Bloodstar Beast that I like nowadays is just because like I've done the fight, I have successfully gone through the fight like eight times. I think at this point, so I remember it being incredibly hard when I started the game. And now, like, I've got it to a science, and so it's, like, that exercise of mastery yeah. that, like, I just like 
fighting him. Dude, it was fucking anymore. incredible in the DLC when you go in that cave and there's just one there as a regular enemy. It's yeah. so That's good. awesome. Because they don't really do that so much in this game. No. no. It's just that and the shadows that show back up in, uh, yeah. in the, the Nightmare. With far less power. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, and honestly, your point stands pretty fucking strong because... Rom is another impactful one. Yeah, Rom and Gascoigne. Eh. Just because he has his own story. Yeah, within, yeah, uh, but... Yarnum. It's not so much with the boss itself, though. Agreed. Boss. Your experience pre Gascoigne is really going to determine how much you like that boss, probably. Yeah. yeah. But uh, the thing... Because the thing that I've last... Really, the, the last thing I think that I want to talk about in terms of bosses... Um, and you want to talk about Mikolash. Oh, yeah, Mikolash is but, another great one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's not a great one. Shut up. I knew you were going to say that. Because <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I think, aside from Demon Souls, uh, their best, like, success of doing a gimmick boss. Like, I, I love that. Just, like, chasing him through the nightmare. I'm fortunate enough to have never died to, to him. Yeah. Because I know that my opinion would go like a light switch if I had to do the whole thing again just based on how impatient I am. <laughs> yeah, I, he, he killed me once. Like, because he had some attack that just like one hit killed me. Yeah. Like, like he did like the explosion, like yeah, a call, bunch of light like, beams and they all hit yeah, me. And beyond. I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> it took me forever, like maybe ten minutes for me to find where his final location was, and that sort of ruined the fight for me. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm almost certainly my fault. It seems like such a, like, what percent <laughs> of people had this experience going into Mikolash, mm-hmm. but I could not for the life of me figure out that where that place to drop down was. Mm-hmm. I, like, I eventually just started adhering to like the left-hand maze rule. Left-hand rule. Left-hand yeah. rule. I didn't make it up. Yeah. <laughs> just to keep going <laughs> through the whole thing. But, yeah, eventually his dialogue got sort of grating after, like, ten solid minutes Cost. of almost no... Awesome. Yeah, that guy is... Uh, Unstable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's part of what makes it so cool. He also has a cool, like, arc as well, because he's like, a cool when you kill him up. and he tells you, like... Like, he's just like, no, like, I'll wake up and I won't remember anything. But like he doesn't you know, that know he's dead. Yeah, he's just a corpse, so he's not waking up. Yeah. Uh, and that's like that feels more impactful in a game where nothing where everything respawns, yeah. that you're killing somebody who you know is now just gone. Yeah. Uh, it's it's easy to understand that too. Like you see his corpse and then you go inside and you realize he doesn't know how long he's been there. Right. And doesn't know that like if you kill him that he's just dead. Yeah. Yeah, so the last thing that I, I had, um, this is how much I like Cleric Beast and Gascoigne as the first two bosses in the game. Really? And entirely from a mechanical standpoint. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I like that Cleric Beast does a really good job of basically telling you like, hey, it's super obvious that one of his arms is like huge and <laughs> like you hit it and he reacts to it when you hit him. Yep. And so it's like, hey, bosses in this game now have like specific weak points and like you can break pieces of them and it will affect how they fight and it's a big monster fight and you're like okay this feels like boss pretty easy not like even to a new player probably not backbreakingly difficult agreed um, agreed it, it is on par with Taurus Demon as being like a super good first boss on a bridge 
Uh, <laughs> Among the bridge bosses. Yeah. Uh, and then your second boss, or your first boss, if you skip the cleric beast, which you can, but I've never met anyone who did it naturally, uh, is Gascoigne, who is, like, the hunter guy. And he actually teaches you a lot about what you can do, in that he, like, will string combos together from, like, a short form into a long form when he does goes into his second phase. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he does, well, you might think after the fight that you can turn into a werewolf, but not for, like, hours and hours. Uh, <laughs> um, other than that, I think he's just, he's a good, like, teaching tool for that. And also, if you're feeling real fucking spicy, you can learn how to visceral attack with him because his attacks are pretty easy to read and you can carry that into the other hunter fights and eventually into PvP. Yeah, it's really, yeah, just like them continuing to just design their games very smart. Mm-hmm. They're both just both good introductions to the two different kinds of bosses you'll be fighting. And not only two different kinds of bosses, but two different kinds of just enemies generally. Mm-hmm. So they have two things, I guess, left. And I know we're going really long. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much you can respond to these as exuberantly or with complete silence. It's okay. I, my depression will, I'm sure, shine through no matter what you say. No. One, there are several inconveniences, I think, in Bloodborne as compared to Souls games. Well, as compared to Dark Souls 1. Oh, yeah. We never really addressed this, did we? Yeah. So you can't level up or rest at a bonfire. Yeah. And a lamp. Right. Well, presumably if it was a bonfire, you could do this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have to go back to the Hunter's Dream for that. It's like to replenish your shit, not even if you wanted to level up. Yeah, that was just a mistake. There's no... That's not toward any goal. They didn't do that for a purpose. No, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And the other thing is, and this there are justifications for it, but it still seems weird that the blood vials as a consumable resource that you have to, like... Farm. Like, I love this game, and I've spent a lot of the time I've played this game doing runs to get a bunch of blood vials. Mm -hmm. And I really, like, none of that, I think, like, that's not a thing I look fondly back on when I I think about this game. It makes literally no sense (laughs) that they made that decision. Like, the Estes system was such a clear improvement, like, just on... It might be the best healing system, like, one of the best healing systems in a game, period. And it's like, how could they backpedal on that? Like, it's something that was even critically acclaimed. Yeah. Like, that people, like, fucking geek out over. <laughs> about, like, one of the reasons that, like, Dark Souls is great. And they're just like, ah, let's just not do that. They're, let's they're have you, like, to, make, you know, go have to farm blood vials. They're trying to incentivize you to use the health recovery system. They're trying to make rallies more important to the game. That's why they did it. Uh, there's a lot of other reasons, I think, as well. Sure. But That's like, one that stuck out to me. Yeah, because there's, there's a, a pretty huge difference between using an Estus Flask and using a blood vial, in as much as it happens a lot faster. Uh, you can do it, like, in the middle of your fight without having to, like, back way up. You don't really slow down at all when you're doing it. It's like a one-second animation and you heal. Yeah. So because of that and because of the amount of, like, the, the way they balance the game in terms of enemy damage, your damage, the amount of health you have, all that shit, necessitated you to carry more than, like, five at a time. 
So the Estus system, as it stands in Dark Souls, doesn't necessarily work, but I also don't think that it's significantly different enough that they couldn't have just refilled you to 20. Yeah. I think they should have just had the number at 20 and just, like, refill them at the lamps. Yeah. And, like, they would have... It's, it wouldn't cause any problems that couldn't just be solved by, like, balancing and, like, stuff that they already have to do when making the game. Like, it also doesn't cause any problems narratively because it would make sense that the Hunter's Workshop would just have, like, fucking billions of blood vials. Like, it... I don't know. You guys are selling me on this, though, the longer you talk about it, but when I played, I did I did completely agree that the farming was a problem, especially when you hit bosses, which should be, like, the biggest flow state yeah, in this you game. You just retry a boss over and over again. Yeah, but the, the solution that I liked, that the game at times goes through and then sort of forgets that it exists sometimes, is providing enemies along a path that are easy to kill in your way and give you lots my go-to for this are the pigs near Shadow of Yarnum. That you, you know, it's a really easy way on oh. the way. Oh, yeah, those pigs. Yeah, those pigs. Okay. That give you like a billion blood vials and are your constant easy refill source. It's a way for them to incentivize not doing the sprint thing and allowing the game to have more of a natural cycle of like standard play and boss play. We get into sort of the discussion on the Dark Souls cast, so we can reference that there as well. But I'm generally a fan of going through pre-boss zones intentionally looking to fight things up to that point. Right. And using a system where the only way to get your health restoration ability back is by going through small fights competently. Seems smart. But I can't use that as a defense of the system if they just don't do that sometimes with bosses, which yeah. they do. Yeah, and it, it becomes an issue, and bosses, I think, are obviously the, the worst example of it, because the, in Dark Souls, you can get into, like, a nothing-to-lose state, where yes. you refill your Estus, run to the boss, fight the boss, die, and repeat. You don't really care about how many souls you're losing or whatever. You can get to the point where you don't care about your blood echoes, but you can't get to the point where you don't care about your blood vials. Yep. You will eventually run out and you'll have to take a break from the boss to go run around and, and kill things. Yep. Yeah. And it sucks like we would be doing like we'd be playing together. Mm. Like and we'd like hit a point where like we both ran out of vials and we have to go farm them. Which <laughs> yep. is not fun. It's very lame. Yeah. Okay. So we're running super long. So Yes. I think we can I don't think that any of this is new information for people. So we could probably summarize in like a couple sentences piece here. Uh, Chalice dungeons are stupid. Uh, procedurally generated Dark Souls seems like a thing that I would love. Uh, turns out, it isn't. Turns out, the things that made Dark Souls so important most of the time was the kind of meanings that get ascribed over them. Yeah, I actually could say a lot about Chalice Dungeons. Yeah, <laughs> I like, realized that, and I also realized how long this was, and that we never came back to them. Yeah, like. I actually have a theory that that's why the game feels short, or is shorter, because they had to spend time, money, and resources on making the Chalice Dungeons. Which, to be fair, not a whole lot, considering they just eh. reuse, like, you know, They rooms. still have to put it all together. Like, that's that. I'm sure that took a lot more time than you would think. I'm sure it's, it's There's one unique, zone less. Yeah. Right. I think they should have just made Thumaru... An actual area. area in the game. Like well, they kind of made Lauren an area 
Because Laura is the Nightmare Frontier in the... <laughs> it's Laura. But anyway. Or or just cut all that shit to get all together and just had it another zone. Well, the thing is... At, at least one more. Like, it's so miserable, though, like, going through, like, multiple deaths of the same... Like, yep. There are a couple really of standout areas, yeah. but we're only talking about the ones that are intentionally designed. They yep. also have the challenge dungeons where you get the most like relevant resources, and this is predominantly for PvP. Are like like high level random dungeons, which are just similar rooms strung together a whole bunch of times, mm. and it's that just gets repetitive and is not a thing that I'm a big fan of. I really like the idea of them having a boss, because I like the the original bosses from the Chalice Dungeons. Yeah. But when you have to go through bullshit like the Defiled Chalices where you have half health, it's not so good. Because, like, I see why why they tried it. Like, I feel like it's an idea that sounds good on paper. And they were, like, it was fun when we did them together. Like, they were fun to do co-op. But, like, I think that because they're in there, we got robbed of, like, content that would have been in the base game that probably would have just been better. I feel... Like, there's no way that those being in there did not, like, take something away from the base game. I'm inclined to give it a no harm, no foul kind of situation where it was an experiment that didn't work out. They procedurally generated the wrong parts. That's what they did. Because the the reason that procedurally generated Dark Souls sounds cool is because we're thinking in our minds that we're going to be encountering new scenarios. And that never exists in, in the Chalice Dungeons because the thing that get generated are sequences of scenarios. Right. Yeah, it, it just... Yeah. It could be better. It's like saying a deck of playing cards creates something that's like a procedurally generated game. Right. Yeah. You, you're like, oh, it's like you could play like a bunch of different card games, but really you're just playing with random cards. Yeah. It's the idea that, it like, what matters isn't the combination of rooms. What matters is the rooms, and the order that they're in does not. Right. And that's all that Chalice Dungeons randomizes is the rooms and sometimes what things are there. Right. So... The endings and the final boss and JJ's experience. <laughs> I lost a game of chicken with Bloodborne. Because I was... Okay, this game of chicken lasted a matter of seconds, which I think <laughs> is actually the average time that most games of chicken last, come to think of it. But uh, after I go into the garden, uh, I was given an option to be killed and wake up peacefully. I just could not believe that a From Software game would give you the option to not have a final boss fight, and was so curious what they were going to do with this scenario, and while still honoring your choice, because they're cool people who generally do that when they provide you a choice, and then my head gets cut off and the game ends relatively happily, and I was sad and tried to take it back in a panicked fashion and couldn't. And yeah. I'm not, I was sad about it at the time, I'm not that that sad about it. it. It accidentally made the end of the game sort of a slow burn off for me instead of like an explosion of cool, but uh, I do think the ending that I chose, even though it's completely out of step with my narrative understanding of the game and what my character would have done, is the happiest one? Absolutely is. Uh, 
But we don't know what kind of implications it has. Like, I assume that, like, this is just gonna happen again to right. someone else. But when you... It is. And, in fact, if... Uh, because I got that ending for the first time uh, this week when I played the game again uh, and finished it with my Blood character. And when you boot the game up again, get the second time that you go back after the doll has animated, uh, she'll be standing at a grave, and she'll be like, this is a grave of a hunter I once knew, and like, I hope that you found your peace. And I was like, oh, so it does happen again to me. Which sucks. Because <laughs> uh, I was under the impression as well that it was the happiest ending, at least for your character, because you can go back to your world of blissful ignorance. And the sun the, rises. Yeah. And the sun rises, which is an optimistic image, even if it's rising on uh, a newly decimated street. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, the other two endings have you personally perpetuating and presumably killing hundreds of other hunters uh, as, like, the Garman figure uh, and taking over the hunter's dream for him. Ob- like, by obligation, you are stuck there. Uh, and the third ending is probably the worst ending for your character because <laughs> you turn into a slug and it reveals that... Isn't it kind of like a squid? It's kind of... It's like it's a... It's a slimy tube. Yeah. A slimy tube. It doesn't it's, have tentacles, though? It, does. it has like four, and they're like on the end. Like, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tentacle monster yeah. tube. And it reveals basically that uh, nothing you did actually really mattered much at all, and that you are now a squid. Yeah. I've actually heard people refer to that one as the good ending. It is, by video game definitions, the hardest to get, and therefore the good ending. <laughs> I kind of dislike not the way that it ended with you becoming a squid person but the way that they sold that ending I felt like it was missing a scene I wanted the scene where I become the squid person if not explicitly on camera implied (laughs) off camera and never got it after I watched this and it doesn't like the whole process of getting the chords is cool I love the chords as not as this like overarching crazy thing that you come to acquire that's mysterious and as a way that they hint toward the involvement of the great ones in scenarios where you don't necessarily think that they might be involved right um but i don't like that you just cut away after the moon after killing the moon presence and you're now a squid i want i what happened there it doesn't seem like even one of the circumstances where it's like an interesting mysterious unknown like it's so necessary for this type of story to be told it's not like an unknowable thing. Like I, as the squid person, as that character, should know how I became a squid. That's right. probably something that I uh, that should. This actually, me. this is like, it is the, a little unsatisfying. The physical transformation is the thing that, like, I have. I don't know what the moon presence did to trigger this because yeah. the the thing in game, like in canon, is that because you've been using the blood of the great ones and you've now incorporated the umbilical cords. Uh, you like every great great one's child is stillborn like they never have a living child yeah. so you became the child already alive by being partly human and mostly great one but who knows why or how that happened based on the fact that you just hit a guy with like a big machete a thousand times and then he died I also don't like it the, doesn't make sense. there's the constant eyes on the inside hinting 
And then the thing you turn into is a squid creature. Uh, that is actually literal. When they say they want eyes on the inside, the idea is that they are looking into their head, and they, a lot of members of like the 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 uh, of the Ber- of Bergenworth, literally surgically inserted eyes into yeah, their heads. There's there are eyes on the inside of like some character models. Yeah, like they went that far, like to actually put them in there. Yeah, even Jesus. though no one would ever see them. Okay. Yeah. But uh I I agree with the umbilical cord thing, but I ended up I found them all and like was sure that they did something cool. Right. But I was afraid to consume them. Like I wish there was some kind of hint that you were supposed to like use them. Like I was saving them. I, like I did uh, not I didn't I get I get what you mean. Like now. I did not want to like use one and be like fucked. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there is a, like, note that... There might be. There is, uh, in the lecture hall. I believe there's uh, a note on the ground that, uh, explains that you're supposed to use them. But yeah, I was, I was too afraid to use them. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, my first ending was the Jedi's Fog Airman. This is why I don't generally play from software games blind. Like, if there's something that I'm curious about, I usually will look it up. So that that doesn't happen. Yeah. And of course, I was under the impression that, like Dark Souls, I was just going to play this game and then put it down. Not that it was going to become one of my favorite games of all time and play now seven times through. And that is uh, saying a lot, I think. Thank you for listening to Nightclub this week. What are we talking about next time? Next time, uh, we're going to... Weirdly continue our PlayStation-exclusive February uh, <laughs> and talk about The Last of Us. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, until then, all of our contact information is going to be found on our website, noclippodcast.com. Uh, check us out on iTunes if that isn't where you're listening to us. And now on Google Play, uh, leave us a rating and a review. I'll see you guys on the next one. Nice hand. Nice good hand motion. Uh, This is your seeing hand that you use to wipe sight into reality. JJ, would you say that Bloodborne is a blood sausage? I've never had a blood sausage and thus cannot comment. Mm. It seems appropriate, right? Is there something bloodier than a blood sausage? Probably. Like just eating something that is currently alive? Yeah. Bloodborne is a living cow. That's what it is. No, don't go that far. How about like a raw steak? No, because a raw steak can't kick the shit out of yeah, it. Yeah, but I mean, like this the is, heartbeat this of, isn't of the cow propels the blood into the air <laughs> as you chew it, like uh, Fine. every enemy. Yeah, this has to be an actual food. No one actually just eats a live cow. Uh, you no do one... if you're a wolf. I said no one implying a person, Chad. <laughs> there. <laughs> It has to be an actual food, JJ. I don't think that there could be a food bloodier than a blood sausage because it's just blood. Wait, a blood sausage is just blood? Isn't it just like congealed blood? I or think it is. Of a different thing. Or at least it's got just straight up blood in it. <laughs> oh, congealed. I didn't even think you meant congealed. I thought it was just like a water balloon. No. Blood. Oh. <laughs>